All right. Well, hello there. Uh, welcome to the podcast a la Deadly Analysis. Uh, tonight, my co-host and I intend to feast on the smorgasbord of horror delights laid out before us, thanks to Captain Boyd and Colonel Ives. And that's because we're talking about one of my favorite movies. That's right. Just movies, not horror movies. One of my favorite movies ever. And that is the 1999 film Ravenous. Uh, written by Ted Griffin and directed by Antonia Bird, famous for her 1995 film Mad Love. Uh, this is just slightly better than Mad Love, I'd like to point out. Uh, this film follows the coward Captain John Boyd, who ironically receives a promotion after defeating the enemy command in a battle uh, during the Mexican-American War. But because the general realizes that it was actually an act of cowardice that got him there, He's, uh, uh, John Boyd is given a backhand promotion, essentially, to Fort Spencer, where he is third in command. Um, and at Fort Spencer, the others there with him are two Indians, George and his sister Martha, uh, who came with the place. Uh, Chaplain Toffler, uh, Reich, the soldier, Cleves, a drugged-up cook, and Knox, who is frequently drunk. I like Knox, because he's frequently drunk. That's why I like him. Um... And so when a Scottish stranger named Calhoun appears and recovers from frostbite almost instantly after being bathed, you know, as one does, uh, he tells everyone at Fort Spencer a very, like, Donner Party-esque story about his party leader, Ives, eating members of the party to survive. And as part of their duty at uh, Fort Spencer, they must go to the cave where all of this supposedly occurred to see if anyone has survived. However, George warns them that since Calhoun admitted to eating human flesh, he must be a Wendigo, a ravenous, cannibalistic creature. And uh, spoiler alert, he's a freaking Wendigo. Like, super Wendigo, too. Like, if we, like, in the world of Wendigo ratings, right? Let's say Justine from Raw is, like, a level three Wendigo. Uh, Jim, one of our co-hosts, he'd be, like, a level six. He likes to eat children. And Calhoun is probably like a level 10, without a doubt, like top 10 scale of the Wendigo. Um, in fact, he loves man meat so much that this film almost at times takes on like a homoerotic vibe. I, I don't know if you guys noticed that. There's almost like a, a cute, playful cat and mouse game between Boyd and Ives or Calhoun, same person as you come to find out. It's a very Louis and Lestat, uh, uh, Louis and Lestat back and forth in this movie. Um, I'm thinking of the ending sort of murder-suicide bear trap scene really that really underscored that for me. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. Um, curious to know if you guys kind of got that vibe too. Maybe I'm just working out my own sexuality. Who knows? So uh, I'm going to tell you why I love this movie besides the cannibalism and, you know, homoeroticism. Those are the obvious reasons. Um, I love this movie because it is so fucking weird. This is a weird movie. This is just a strange movie. It's largely defined by its shifts in tonality. And I think that initially turned a lot of critics off at the time of its release. But um, but I loved it. I loved it when I first saw it in 99 and it's 20 years later and I still love it. Um, like Guy Pierce almost always has this dull, lifeless count countenance to him throughout the movie. And that's contrasted with Robert Carlyle who's almost always cracking jokes whilst spewing other people's viscera everywhere. It's just so weird and strange. It's like this dark and violent movie at times, but it's also like hilarious at other times. On the one hand, it has kind of this homey indoor sort of fireplace warmth to it, but then it also takes place in the cold and bleak Sierra Nevadas, right? It starts with a serious quote from Nietzsche, by the way, misspelled, I'd like to add, that wasn't an oversight. 
Um, and then ends, you know, that same scene with eat me, right? It's just so weird. Like who thought of this? This is such a weird movie. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this too, but the movie itself was notoriously, uh, a notoriously cursed production and was almost universally panned when it was first released. But I mean, I feel like this movie has sort of become a cult classic over time. Like movie critics have basically turned into John Boyd. Like they refused at, at the beginning to taste the meaty goodness to savor its complex and juicy flavors. They shunned it and looked at the movie with disdain, but now they've taken a, a bite and then a second bite and stew has grown on them as it were. Um, so I like Ravenous because really nothing is what it seems with this movie. It's literally the Calhoun of horror films, all right? Um, I love this movie because of the music, because of the score. Uh, the main theme by Michael Nyman and Damon Albarn just never leaves you once you hear it. In fact, so much so, and I finally get to tell this story, so much so that my wife and I have an inside joke uh, related to the main, um, uh, Boyd's theme, the main theme. I think it's called Boyd's Journey, technically. Um, I don't know how this happened, but whenever whenever my wife and I are doing something publicly, and it actually doesn't even need, need to be in public, but whenever something awkward happens with someone else, like if, if think of like a Michael Scott scene in the office, whenever something's just weird for everyone and it's just kind of off, um, give me an example, uh, like a month ago, uh, we, my wife and I were out to eat and we heard a couple arguing next to us and it just got a little elevated and loud to where other people were kind of looking at them. And literally like my instinctual reaction was to go do, 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 It's like a thing that I've been doing for years. Doesn't make sense. I do it when things get awkward. Like the way you're looking at me right now is awkward. So I should be doing the theme right now. Um, so I like that music is just insane. Like there are like flutes and mouth harps and accordions in the score. I'm thinking of the scene where Colonel Ives first starts chasing Boyd on the mountainside. Like there's a twangy banjo song playing, right? It's just amazing to me. It just underscores the sort of weird ass tonal shifts throughout this entire movie. It's like one moment there's this orchestral tune and then immediately after it, there's this fiddle driven maniacal music they probably play at the start of Appalachian orgies in the backwoods. You know what I mean? It's so strange. Um, so I think this is a movie that embraces contradiction, largely. I mean, it's violent, it's brutal, it's taboo. Uh, I think it utilizes dread pretty well, but it, but it's also hilarious. It has that rare Evil Dead-like quality to it that, um, it, whether purposefully or accidentally, who the hell knows? Um, it sort of just become became its own thing. It's probably because it had about 95 directors attached to it. Um, so I think there's this like lightning in the bottle element to Ravenous that I really appreciate, enjoy. Uh, it's just so unique. It's my favorite cannibal film in, within the horror genre. Um, so I have a lot more notes, but I'll just leave that there for now. I'm curious, I'm, I'm really curious to know what you guys think of this movie. I've been wanting to talk about it for a really long time. This has been on my list for a while. Um, I, I doubt all of you will be as excited as I am for this movie. This is one of my all time favorites, but I just kind of want to pick your brains and see what you guys thought of the movie. So I'll just throw it out there to anybody. Uh, I'm here tonight with Ben Shera. Uh, and then Jim and Garrett at the movies, they're here too, special in-house, both of them tonight. So uh, what did you guys think of Ravenous? Just all open up the floor. I, I just wanna say that I thought this was a really great reboot of the Matt Stone and Trey Parker film, uh, Cannibalism the movie, or the musical I think it is. Um, and it, the thing is, is this is so similar to the, I don't know if you guys have seen Cannibalism the musical. Um, it's such a similar type of thing. Of course, with Matt Stone and Trey Parker, you're going to get something a lot more wacky. This is uh, this is obviously 
a lot more of a dramatic film that we watched. But um, the almost the exact story, people out in the mountains, a Western, uh, they are all of a sudden going to eat. It's actually based on a true story, the cannibalism, the musical. Um, and it also had a lot more violence, funnily enough, in the comedic one. Um, but the thing is, this is comedy too, right? And so I was like, is this just a 90s thing? Did the 90s just think cannibalism was hilarious and they just turned out a bunch of comedy, Western cannibalism? Well, they, they also made a live in the 90s too, I think, <laughs> which I saw as a comedy. I don't know how you guys felt, um, but... Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on perspective, <laughs> but yeah, I, it, I don't know. I think that there was something to the nineties and there is a very nineties vibe to this film, um, especially with the particular actors that are in. I, I see a character that I loved from stay tuned. Um, what is his name? Jeffrey Jones, I think is his name. Uh, but he was in stay tuned, which was a great early nineties horror film that I think everybody forgot about, but I love it. Um, and he was also in Ferris Bueller's day off, but that was an eighties movie, but there was still like a very nineties vibe to this, this film, even though it was supposed to be set in the West. Um, especially with the Napoleon dynamite kind of music that was playing in the background. So I, I don't know. I, it, it felt comfortable. It felt like home <laughs> and I just sat through it like, okay. This is this is the '90s. I feel like I'm a teenager again. I didn't get to watch a lot of horror in the '90s, so you know it's kind of fun to go back and look at these kinds of films and and laugh your ass off. It, it was very funny. I I don't I don't know if people laughed as hard as I did, but I was laughing a lot. You know, I agree about the uh, the '90s assessment there, um, and I wasn't really 100% sure whether or not to use that as a criticism. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I don't just want to say because it was made within a particular time period that it's worse, but I I had trouble with this because I know it's supposed to be like heavily emphasizing atmosphere, even though there is a little bit of a, a sort of like a schizophrenic kind of like jumping back and forth of themes. It's it's largely atmospheric. And like they even do go the extra mile to use cannibalism to explore some deeper philosophical themes and maybe some socioeconomic themes. Um, and But I mean, that alone, like, I, I don't know, like I, I had a little bit of trouble getting over how disorganized it felt. You know what I mean? Although I will say that on the positive side of feeling like a very stereotypically 90s movie, I do like that they used cannibalism in this and that it had that feel because when I think about this in the timeline of comparing this to something like American Psycho, which was supposed to be kind of like set in the 80s and you have this sort of like peak consumerism and then maybe you get into the 90s and you start to have that sort of like guilt about that and that self-consciousness and then that sort of I think goes into that idea of consuming oneself or like consuming what other people have and stealing their life to bolster your own to bring it to a new level it's really not about survival for some characters in this movie it's really about going to the next level and so I mean because you can dig into some of those deeper themes I think it's good and especially kind of like it's a time period piece but also I have that other feeling too you know what I mean so it's like I, I still think I'm on the fence about this whether or not the the kind of like the 90s feel and like the the elements that we've talked about so far are like good or if they sort of hurt it overall well, I think you see a lot of the 90s aesthetic in the editing style as well that quick those quick edits um there's a there's a rhythm to the editing where almost I I was trying to count for a little bit of the film of how long each shot lasts and in many cases it's like less than less than five seconds before there's a cut in some cases it's like one to two seconds where they they just cut and that was 
that was all over 90s films where the, there was this really quick editing style that kind of mirrored the way some of the dialogue was done as well. So um, I found that to be, I, I that's where I see the 90s aesthetic aside from maybe the hairstyles and all of that. But uh, outside of that, I, I didn't necessarily, the, the title sequences were anachronistic as well. Um, but a, as a whole, I don't think that the 90s aesthetic really distracted me from the story the film was trying to tell and some of the, the themes, uh, existentialist themes, among others, that this film is is dipping its toes in. Um, I don't know. What about you, Garrett? Yeah, I, I, I want to take some time later on to delve deeper into the, the explicitly philosophical themes because I think those, they're, they're quite rich. But to, to open things up... Noah, I could have sworn this movie was on my list. I'm 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 very glad to hear that it's actually on yours uh, because I too uh, love this film. Um, there there are you might love it a little bit more than me. There's some things I think I can criticize about it, but I'll get to, to that later on too. Um, but something I think which hasn't really explicitly been mentioned is I think the acting is fantastic. You know, I think uh, Guy Pearce and Robert Carlyle in particular, I think really, uh, you know, you, you noted the, the nice sort of yin yang contrast between the two. But each performance on its own also stands alone really really well. Um, uh, I, another thing I loved about this movie um, is that the first time I saw it, I wasn't really able to get ahead of it. I mean, this is something, that, a, a mode in which I watch a lot of movies. I try to anticipate what's coming next. You know, I, I imagine if I were writing this film, how would I have these elements play out? How would I have this character art go? And usually, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily right all the time, but I usually have some pretty reasonable guesses. But this is a film where uh, you know, after about the first act or so, I wasn't able to get more than like maybe five minutes ahead of the film, and I kept I kept trying to figure out where it was going to go, and was pleasantly surprised time and time again uh, that it kept surprising me. And I I, I love being surprised by films, uh, and so uh, this uh, this is a film I've come back to several times, and even knowing how it's going to end, I can I can appreciate how it sets up the various elements in such a way as to stay ahead of its audience. Um, and, and in that way, I think it's a particularly intelligent film. Yeah, I think that when I first watched it in the 90s, I watched it because Robert Carlyle was in it and I really liked him in, in Train Spotting. And I was like, well, I'm going to see the next Robert Carlyle film, uh, which, you know, I don't think anybody else had has ever said. Like, <laughs> when's the next Robert Carlyle coming out? Fuck Tom Cruise. I want Robert Carlyle movies. And uh, yeah, so, and, and afterwards I sort of found it to be just sort of this pulpy, fun, or comedy jaunty score thing smorgasbord of a movie that I kind of appreciated for what it was and then of course I rewatched it before the podcast and uh, I was like oh no I've got to say there's there's more to this movie and uh, you know I was kind of I'm preparing myself to sort of talk about the philosophical themes of the film and uh, and and I noticed that a lot more in the second viewing than I did back in the 90s yeah, I'd be, yeah. Curious to pick, I'd be curious to pick your brains as to whether you guys, there's a lot of ways we could cut this movie. I, we'll jump into that, I think, in a few minutes, like whether this is going to be a, a meat-eating, a vegan thing, a sociopolitical sort of manifest destiny thing. I'm, I'm curious what spin you guys felt was the most forceful piece of this film. But really quickly, before we hop into that, let's, because it's so well known how, how cursed this production was, let me kind of go through like the 30 second version of what happened. So the original director of this movie, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher his name, but it was a man, I think named Milko Manchevsky. I don't, Jim, I don't know if you know who that is. You're the guy who knows all the directors. I have no idea who that is. Um, 
So he, uh, apparently he caused a ruckus when he first started filming this. He was ca he called the studio and asked them to rent like a luxury car for him and pay all of his parking tickets. The studio refused. Uh, they thought he was just too difficult to work with. And, and like a week before shooting, uh, he submitted alternate storyboards, demanded constant rewrites from the script uh, writer, Ted Griffin, um, which apparently required like weeks and weeks of additional shooting. So, and and then uh, to make matters worse, like the first few weeks of actual footage that when the studio got their hands on it, they thought it was terrible, like just absolutely abysmal. And so it wasn't long before like the studio head flew to the location uh, with a second director, replacement director, which happened to be Home Alone 3's director. I think it's Raja Gosnell. Um, and I, apparently that person was so bad that the cast and crew uh, went out on strike, didn't want to work with the person at all. Um, and then eventually Robert, Car uh, Robert Carlyle suggested Antonia Bird uh, take over directing duties. He had worked with her on a previous project. So Bird arrived on set and she found like the facilities were terrible. Like um, she called the working conditions horrible and she defended the first director. Um, and so it was just a process for her to get through this entire movie. Um, once the film was finalized, the studio continually tampered with the final cut in post-production, um, adding what Bird called superfluous expository bookend narration. So one of them, for example, was the eat me scene, uh, the eat me quote at the beginning. Um, so I, it, it just, it was kind of a nightmare, right? And then the other thing is, I think, you know, we got to think about, think about all the movies that came out in 99 to sort of bury this one. This came out like two weeks before The Matrix. Right, like there were so many good movies in '99 that I feel like this is just cursed all around. And, and in fact, one of the only um, positive, one of the only movie critics at the time that spoke positively of *Ravenous* that I could find was actually, of all people, Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert. Um, he said, and we get the quote. He said, "It's the kind of movie where you savor the texture of the filmmaking, even when the story strays into shapeless gore." Which I think is is interesting. I think our aesthetics and our like not aesthetics, I think our, our, like, the way we look at gore and violence in horror movies 20 years ago from today, I think it's changed wildly. And I think that quote sort of shows that, like, shapeless gore, I don't, I didn't really, I don't know, that, there's plenty of movies today that have shapeless gore, you know what I mean? I, so I didn't feel like that was a good one. Anyway, yeah, totally cursed production, uh, when it, that's why I think there's so many weird shifts in tonality, different styles, um, it, that's why it feels funky. And so this is one of those few movies that I feel like it, uh, it kind of worked, you know what I mean? You can sort of sense it, but at the end, the product that you get at the end is something that's so weird and funky and unique that for me, it worked. This has so much replay value, Ravenous. There's very few horror films that I can just fall asleep to and watch on end. Pontypool, Session 9, thanks to Garrett. I originally hated Session 9, but there's something about the setting. It's, it's movies that all kind of take place in an isolated setting. Actually, that's kind of weird. So Pontypool, Session Nine, um, and this and Ravenous. So um, anyway, yeah, lot of lot of lot of crap going on behind the scenes with with Ravenous. And on and that note, can I? Hungry. Can I? <laughs> I I just want to recommend a book. I don't know if you guys have read it yet, and I got it because it just recently came out, and it's a fantastic book. And it's great for movie nerds. Uh, it's called Best Year Ever with periods after each word about all of the amazing fucking films that came out in 1999. It was an amazing year for film. And you're right. Ravenous had to compete against all that. That's really hard to deal with. Like, if you think about all the amazing movies that came out that year, it's no wonder that this one kind of got swept under the rug. But comparing it to movies from other years, maybe we start to notice the awesomeness of it. 
Um, but when you mentioned 1999, I had to bring up that book. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think Fight Club came out in 90. Like, there were just so many great movies in 99, you know? So, terrible time to come out. Yeah, when you put it in that context, though, I mean, like, comparing that to something like The Matrix or even Fight Club, like, I feel like it makes it even worse. I don't know. Like, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm going to be the negative voice this time. I don't know, man. But, like, I... <sighs> Okay, so I, I do want to take this back to a point, too, and talk about the acting just a little bit. So I do think, speaking of Robert Carlyle, I feel like he was the saving grace in this film, honestly. Um, his acting was so interesting, like, especially when you get into kind of like that second half, wherever you kind of get the big twist. I don't think we've mentioned any, like, big spoilers so far, but I feel like we're getting into that territory. So whatever, if you're watching spoilers, we're going to, I'm going to start spoiling the movie for everyone. I apologize. But whenever we get into this and we have that big twist where it turns out he's still active within the military under this other, like, alternate persona or, or whatever it is, that was really surprising for me. I, I thought that was really enjoyable. His acting is kind of like the sort of, like, um, out of it kind of, like, weird guy that just went through this big traumatic experience or whatever. Like, that was interesting. And I was like, okay, well, as a standalone performance, this seems to fall in line with everything else that I've seen in the movie so far. It's good, but it's about where I would expect it to be, you know, at that point in the storyline compared to all of the other writing and acting that was going on. But after that point, I felt like he really became a, an interesting sort of villain, if, if you want to call him a villain in this. I think that's fair. And that I feel like can either make or break a movie when you have like an interesting antagonist. That is really kind of like the one like numero uno factor. I feel like for a lot of stories for me, like if if they're really taking this sort of like good versus evil, yin versus yang, good vi good guy versus bad guy perspective and like narrative, you know, it, it, if you have a shitty bad guy, like it's totally going to fall apart. And I think he did really well in carrying this film from that perspective. And maybe it was partly because of the writing. Maybe it was because of his acting. But he was sort of like that core component for me. I mean, if you compare that to, to Guy Pierce's performance here, maybe it was good. Maybe it was quality. But I really felt pretty bored, honestly, by his by his sort of like storyline here. I, I don't feel like there was any sort of like growth or transformation in his character. And while his character was pretty interesting, right? I mean, like he had this sort of, you know, meat is always, any kind of meat is always a last resort. You know, I'm willing to survive and do what it takes to survive, but you know, I'm not going to like do these things just to overindulge, you know, you know, it's like he has a really interesting sort of moral perspective. And especially if you start pulling Nietzsche into this and you talk about whether, you know, Ives or Boyd are kind of like more like that ideal from like the Nietzschean philosophical perspective that that's kind of cool but as a character like he's super boring and I, I don't know if anyone else sort of like got that but yeah I mean that I think also kind of like goes back maybe to a confusion and a weakness in the writing you know I mean there's like there's good stuff in there but it just needed a little more time I don't know like maybe a little more time with that like final director like a little more cohesion in the ideals um but even then like the there's there's the sort of confusion there just sort of like muted I feel like what could have been some of the best parts of the movie for me, but at are, least, are you, are at you least talking, Robert Carlyle was fantastic. I agree with, I agree with Jim on that. Are you talking specifically like about his muted affect that he just doesn't, that it, it like he, well, not like he necessarily, Okay. not necessarily, because I feel like if we're going to compare this to other 90s films and, and particularly the matrix, you know, when you, when you think about Neo, he, I feel like is the stereotypical archetypal sort of like blank mask that people like to use as a hero because as an audience, it's easy to project ourselves onto that. So if you have that muted affect and like if you sort of like have a hero that doesn't become um, sort of like pronounced in any particular elements and they just stay flat so they're a good screen for personal projection, like that can work. There can still be growth there and The Matrix is a really good example of that. But in this particular case, there's just literally no transformation from beginning to end for Boyd. 
He's the same guy throughout the entire movie. A thing happens to him at the beginning. A thing happens to him at the end. He like does this personal sacrifice thing. But I feel like that even that, like that's not, I don't know. I mean, like, what do you guys think? Is that supposed to be the transformation? Like at the beginning, he's this coward and like sort of gets the blood in his mouth and becomes like a superhero and whatever. And at the end, he's willing to have self-sacrifice. Like, is that the journey for him? Is that his hero's journey? I, th- I, I think I think he just wanted to snuggle Calhoun. I, you know, <laughs> I yeah. go, go 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 ahead, uh, Garrett. Um, yeah, uh, I gotta disagree, Ben. Um, I think a lot of what we're calling his flat affect is 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 a pretty nuanced portrayal of PTSD. Um, I think that that's explicit and very much a decision on the part of both uh, uh, Guy Pearce as an actor and the filmmakers writ large. Um, obviously, there's a certain amount of melodrama going on, uh, given the nature of the uh, of the film. But uh, uh, I think it hits that note for me quite nicely. But as far as the arc is concerned, uh, one of the things I find philosophically quite interesting about his character uh, is, is it's an exploration of the precise meaning and commitments of courage. Right. Uh, again, he he starts off the story as an abject coward who who fails upwards. Um, and you know, there's an explicit uh, um, monologue in there where Robert Carlyle is saying, "It's not courage to resist me, or to to to, to accept my offer. It's not, it's not courage to resist me. It's courage to accept me. Uh, it's courage to become this sort of Nietzschean Ubermensch and to transcend morality." Um, and uh, uh, then, of course, it's his ultimate decision in the final act uh, to 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 fight face to face, head to head. None of this playing dead accidentally getting behind enemy lines shit. He's going to go toe to toe. He's going to put his life on the line. He's not going to run away like he does in the, in, in the first act where he jumps over the cliff rather than uh, than fighting Robert Carlyle. Um, the, the the character arc is is both character characterological in the sense that uh, his he, he's uh, fleshing out and making more robust the character traits that he has. It's damn near Aristotelian in terms of uh, how it it, it, it is a uh, life affirming and, and uh, life enriching decision, even though it ultimately costs him his life uh, to become that person. And let I think me, let me push back. I think you also have to balance that he's he's after he gets the blood in his mouth and down his throat, um, there is a sense of uh, desire and um, a, a ravenousness, if if you will, that he is also fighting in some of those scenes. So for example, there's, that, there's a brief moment when Jeffrey Jones's character is lying dead and you can almost see him struggling with the the desire to eat Jeffrey Jones right outside that cave. But then this sense of civility or civilization kind of takes over him. So I think there is an internal conflict. Um, Robert Carlyle gets, I, I mean, I wrote down, Robert Carlyle's menacing as fuck. And Robert Carlyle gets most of the meat meteor scenes in this uh, in this film. But I think it's Guy Pierce's internal struggle which is like it's harder to convey and therefore maybe is easier to miss but at the same time i still think it's there and and i think that that that's the protagonist journey that that i find interesting as well see i will push back on that a little bit so i do want to say just just to make it very clear i don't think it's his affect that is the issue so in in that portrayal of a person who is traumatized and maybe has ptsd um that is great like I, i do think his acting is on point. I really do like the way he acts. The character I think is great. I do think it's a, it's an issue of the writing from my perspective is to be clear on that. I think it's like the way his character is written. That's the issue, not his acting, but 
I think I want to push back on that arc a little bit and, and argue that it's still, it, it is a, a flat arc because at the beginning we do see that he, his cowardice, like he's, he's making this decision to try and survive and save himself by just laying down. Like it's a very survivalistic instinct, but after he gets carried behind enemy lines, he's in this pile of bodies. And whenever he gets revitalized, he doesn't make the decision to just run away which is what the coward would do. He's no one expects him to be alive. No one's watching him, which is how he gets the drop on everyone in the, in the camp or whatever. He could have easily just run away. He could have been the coward, but instead he single-handedly takes down everyone in that base and becomes that hero. So, I mean, it is still a little bit of a blurred line. He's being survivalistic, but he has the instinct to rise up and do something greater as well, which is exactly, I think what we see throughout the entire movie he's sort of backing off, but then he's also pushing in. It's it's kind of like he's doing this sort of balancing act the entire time. And like his character, because of that, isn't surprising. Like he's at the very end of the movie, he's eating the stew, right? He's eating the stew to survive. And at the very end, he sacrifices himself to take down Colonel Ives, right? So it's like he's doing both things at the beginning and at the end. Like I, I just, I don't see any, I don't see any change. Are you? Do you think you might be putting too much emphasis on the effects of the stew and the cannibalism, though? Um, because I think that your reading of the film depends upon the idea that the cannibalism is the thing that motivates him to do with, do the brave things. Is no, that I, I what you're saying, or are you saying that there's... Go, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think the cannibalism is what gives him that, that sort of like burst of courage. I really don't think that's what it is. Um, even at the beginning, I think you could have potentially interpret it like that, but I don't think that's the case. I think the cannibalism, just like with the, the core mythology of the film, sort of revitalizes his body, it heals him. And then that gives him the energy to make the, the decisions that he would make as a character anyway. Like, obviously, he has that same input. He's eating human flesh, but he's not making the same decisions as Colonel Ives, right? So, I mean, there's like clearly a character difference between the two. It's just that he's not making any different kind of a decision at the end of the film that he would have made in the beginning, I don't think. He survives, and then he pushes, and then he survives, and then he pushes. You know, I mean, it's like, and that's cool. Like, I mean, I, I do think it's an interesting dynamic, especially contrasted with the antagonist of the film. But if it wasn't for that, there would be nothing like the the entire thing the entire thing rests upon the distinction between ives and boyd boyd by himself I, is nothing i can see what you're i can see where you're coming from like i i can see the fact i, I could see you paralleling um his behavior in the mexican in the war with his behavior against ives i i get that and and that makes sense i i do think that there is a bit more of an arc uh, because he does have to get over his cowardice. He does have to. I think that there is a real character change in Act Three than in Act One. But I understand where you're where you're coming from on that on that score. Um, do we want to move to some of the uh, more philosophical elements of this, Garrett? You I just uh, throw down some stuff. Do you want to go ahead and? Said. Um, so I, I just want to throw this out there. I go back a little bit to the '90s thing. So uh, back in 1928, King Vidor did a movie called The Crowd, and we see the workspace of the desks and how horrible and mundane our lives are. It was fantastic film work, and the 90s did that over and over and over again. You see this in office space. You even see this in The Matrix, um, and it's this office space, like, why do I have to work this environment? Why do I have to deal with these narcissists kind of a, a, a film? 
this is that film. It's just set in a weird thing with cannibalism and Wendigos. But the thing is, is this is an office space drama. Um, it's showing you how your workspace, the people you have to work with, or it's a little bit tough. You have to figure out what you're doing and how you fit in. And you end up with a boss that, um, you know, is not fun to work for. <laughs> you have to figure out, like, how you're supposed to deal with the stress of this job and decide if you're going to jump from the building. Are you going to burn the place down? Do you need your red stapler? God damn it. This is horrible. <laughs> so I feel like it fits so well in with all of the other nineties films, even though it's set in such a different place, it has that uh, work environments suck kind of vibe. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, for some reason, when you find out that the guy who was trembling and, and dying in the cold ends up being like the, uh, the, mm, yeah, mm. <laughs> I just, I wanted him to have a coffee mug. Like <laughs> I know he had stew, but I wanted him to have a coffee mug, honestly. Um, I, and he was a lot more sinister, obviously, but uh, it's, it, it had that office space vibe for me too. So. I never would have compared Ravenous to office space. <laughs> never. <laughs> in a million years like oh this is the joe versus volcano of cannibal movies i never would have thought to to make that connection well i actually saw comparisons with this movie and brave little toaster and i have about 35 reasons why but we'll skip them for now we'll stick with the office space because that actually that's actually kind of rewriting how i see this movie in my head you know because he, he does kind of get shafted into a job he doesn't want so yeah that's interesting it's kind of funky to think about instead um, of which of my co-workers keeps eating my lunch it's which of my co-workers will be my lunch <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey so before we hop into like the philosophical themes of this i i'm just gonna ask a really stupid question um would you eat another person if you had to would you eat another person I think this goes to the vegan first. Yeah, like uh, this goes to the vegan first. How is this before we jump into the philosophical <laughs> themes? This for me is the entree. <laughs> um, the entree. Yes, exactly. Okay. So okay, um, let me start. We got a little personal biography here. Uh, uh, you know, I grew up on the story of, of the Donner Party. Uh, I drove through Donner Pass all the time, going up to Tahoe to go skiing. Uh, it was something that fascinated me um, and enthralled me. And obviously this movie uh, is, is sort of drawing on that story in a lot of ways too. Um, and it, it, I, I had was wondering, I remember there's a, a, a made for TV movie story out of the, out of the Donner Party. And the, the thing that stuck out to me the most is a scene in which they have to tell a little girl that they're gonna kill her dog and eat it. Uh, and as a young child, I of course had, had uh, dogs, loved my dogs, and that thought absolutely horrified me. It horrified me more than the prospect of eating another human being. Um, and so, yeah, it naturally had me thinking, like, you know, if I had to, if I was starving to death, would I eat my dog? Would I not kill and eat my dog? Because that, that was the big difference, right? Whereas the humans, you wait till the humans die and then you eat them. That's pretty horrifying. But when it comes to the animals, you, you, you kill them preemptively. Um, and so when people, you know, again, when engaging in, uh, uh the ethics of, of meat eating and so forth, people will often ask me, would you eat meat if you had to, to survive and so forth? And the question, I like to turn the question around and ask people, would you eat your pet? If, if you had to survive, would yes. You, would you eat another human being if you had to, to survive? Yes. Uh, and, and so you know, uh, this is the, the the frame. You know, the 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 question isn't uh, you know so much 
are these moral principles universal absolutes? It, it, uh, because I you know, don't really subscribe to that way of, of, of moral thinking. Um, but uh, how committed are we to the principles that we claim to hold? You know, the, the, the love we have for our family members, be they animal or human, um, uh, where is that breaking point? Um, how much of this is an actual ethical commitment uh, and how much of it is simply some sort of a, a sociological veneer that it's disgusting to eat human flesh and it, it, it's, it's so corrupting that it turns you into an inhuman monster. Um, now, Again, I think we all understand that, you know, that that is the mythology of the film. Right. But it is worth underscoring here that that mythology isn't completely fictional. It's not completely a artifact of the screenwriter's imaginations. There, there, there are many cultures that have rules about cannibalism, specifically to make that taboo, to eschew it for a variety of reasons, uh, and, and to discourage people from eating other human beings. Um, uh, now, obviously, there's there's uh, some health reasons. Uh, uh, is it Corvo? Is that the, the disease I'm thinking of? There's a particular yeah. disease of, 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 of the brain that you can get if you engage in cannibalism. Um, so there are some, some biological reasons for this. Um, but generally speaking, like most uh, meat-borne diseases, as long as you cook the meat thoroughly enough, it's not really a problem. Uh, so uh, that, that's more of a near reason than a deeper deep down reason um so uh yeah i i i think the 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 question here which situations like this push us to ask um is you know is it the case that we are all just two meals away uh from barbarism uh, is civilization itself simply a veneer uh that we put onto ourselves in order to pretend like we are more moral than we are um uh, it's uh, it is a, a challenging and perplexing question. Uh, it's a question that brings up issues of both philosophy and anthropology. Uh, and, and and Jim was somewhat uh, 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 quick to fire away in his answers, but I, I do want to put the <laughs> the questions to the rest of you guys. You know, no, no, no. I want to put the question to you though. Yeah, yeah. You never you answered. Are... It, it, clearly, he would eat a person. Now I'm taking this as a yes. Uh, Jim, watch your arm. Uh, okay. That's yeah, a long-winded yeah. way of saying Jim, watch your arm. So okay. Yeah, no, and it's okay. Yeah, to answer the question point, like, yes, I would. I, I, I would eat an animal and I would eat a human being if my life literally uh, depended on it. Mm -hmm. But, and again, this is this is the key turnaround. Uh, that for me is a clear transgression of a norm, which normally is a yeah. good one. Uh, mm -hmm. And since most people do not share my norms, most people do eat meat. Um, uh, it, it is, I think, a, a, a in some ways a more interesting question for people who don't have that norm. Well, I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I am on the sort of vegetarian spectrum as a pescatarian. You know, I only eat fish, no other meat, and I rarely even eat fish. That's um, and so, but absolutely, if my life depended on it, and you were already dead, watch your arm. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, if you were already dead. Um, <laughs> and can I, uh, can I inter? Yeah, sure. it's this this conversation a little bit because my daughter she just downloaded the new expansion for sims 4 which involves mermaids now so the characters can be mermaids and she was trying to put in what the diet of her sims can be and she turned to me and she said is it okay for my mermaid to be a pescatarian is that cannibalism and everyone in the house we argued for like hours and couldn't figure out i don't I don't know how it turned into this whole debate thing, but is a, a mermaid eating a fish? This is you, Garrett. This is you, Garrett. You're the moral philosopher here. Go. Yes. Uh, the ethics of mermaid cannibalism. That's a strange thing. Well, uh, I, I can't claim to know a whole lot about mermaids, but it's, it, it seems to me that they, you know, they are, if you will, half fish, half human, or half enchanted fish, half human, something along those lines. 
it's worth noting that fish are not a species. Fish are, are, are a, a, a phylum, something like that. I can't remember exactly what they are on the taxonomical scale. Um, uh, but uh, in the same way, you know, a, a more appropriate question might be something like, would you eat a chimpanzee, which is, you know, in, in not of your species, but all, you know, in your in your broad phylum kingdom or what have you. Um, uh, so uh, as long as the, the mermaid isn't eating another mermaid, it isn't technically cannibalism, I would say. You just argued the exact point my daughter made, and now I feel like she's going to do very well in college. <laughs> oh my God, that was her exact argument. She was like, what type of fish is she then? You know, does that count? But she's actually a mermaid, so only mermaid would be cannibalism, you know, because that would mean that mermaids could eat people then. They could, uh, you know, get the long pork in their diet. <laughs> there has to be a horror movie out there where mermaids eat people. I mean, there's, there's, there's there no is. way. What there is, is and it's fantastic, and I need to put it on the list. We need to discuss mermaid uh It's the Lord. It's a, uh, it's Lord. a Lord. Musical, it's a musical horror film. Uh, yeah, there's, what is it? Is it Danish or Norwegian? It's like Swedish or Norwegian Swedish? or something. Yeah, okay. It's in another language, and it's fucking weird. <laughs> There are song and dance numbers yep. and it's cannibalism. Yep. Well, mermaids eating people. So yeah, it's uh, it's delightful. Wow. Um, well, quality content here on the Deadly Analysis Podcast. <laughs> are mermaids up. cannibals? We don't know. They're not necessarily <laughs> eating mermaids, so it's fine, I guess. Yeah. I, I would address a question in the, the chat. Byron asks, why is it okay to eat fish but not other animals, are they less intelligent or something? No, um, I still feel a moral repugnance about eating fish. It's just that that's where I stopped. I was uh, cutting out a meat per month for when I converted and I just stopped at fish. Uh, uh, in Evansville, it's very difficult to eat at restaurants unless you eat fish. Uh, you have somehow managed it, but you're a special person. So, um, I uh, yeah, that's that's the answer to that question. But what about you, Noah? You you haven't answered this. Are you going to eat another person? You know, if the opportunity arises, happily. I have no problem with it. Um, I don't have any issues with it at all. I don't know why I... I mean, maybe if I'm confronted with the the horror of it, it would dawn on me. Um, but I kind of want to put a spin on this. So, Garrett, you brought up the idea of a pet. And I think my instinctive answer would be that I would almost first eat the person and the dog second. And that's kind of weird. I know that that breaks some ethical boundaries. Like, so I guess the way I would put it is if my dogs were alive and I had no choice, I was going to die, I'd probably die. I, I think. I mean, this is obviously me without being in the scenario. Who knows? I'd probably snap and 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 do it. But I'd like to think, like, if you ask me now, how, while I'm perfectly healthy and I'm not in that situation, I I probably I I'd be okay dying. I wouldn't want to take something that has just perfect um sort of perfect sentience to me. Something that's so pure and noble and isn't you know fucked over by the world and and what it does. You know what I mean? Like a dog is this pure thing. And I, for, I guess I don't see people that same way. I, I certainly value people and I, I, you know, I'm not a murderer and I, I would try to stop someone from being hurt or murdered. I, I certainly would try and stop someone from eating someone else if they were alive. I want to make that very clear, but I would be, I'd almost be more okay eating a dead person than an alive dog. I'd almost opt for that. Any dog first. or your dog specifically? I mean, any dog, any dog. Okay. Yeah, any dog. I mean, I love my dogs because they're my dogs, but honestly, like, I, I think I just go. Is that weird? I mean, I, 
I don't know. Like, okay, so there's there's a reality show that is fantastic. I highly suggest it. It's called Alone. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but basically they take people and they put them completely alone. No camera crews. They have their own cameras on them, completely alone up here in Washington uh, State, in an island up there, uh, to fend for themselves. And whoever lasts longest gets a nice chunk of change. Um and you actually get to see what happens to people. And what's interesting is people will eat anything. They will sleep anywhere. They will shit anywhere. They will do all different kinds of things. But the one thing that has always caused people to drop off the show, either being afraid of being eaten by bears or mountain lions. And then there is the second thing that comes up from the people that don't get afraid of that. And that's just being fucking alone. That is what definitely stops people they will eat anything they will sleep anywhere they will do anything but if they're alone for too long and can't interact with other human beings they start to go completely nuts and so yeah it's it's very interesting to me because the real thing that'll fuck you up it's not trying to figure out if you're going to eat a dog it's going to be can i be alone and i do want to recommend watching uh noah's two minute analysis of uh what is the name of the freaking movie again the, the night eats the world oh Yes, uh, because that is the perfect movie to watch about this. You will make friends with zombies because you're so alone. Like that's that's what the film is explaining to you. So, yeah, it being alone is probably much more of a harder decision or a harder thing to deal with than figuring out if you're going to eat meat. And I, I would also like to throw out there my favorite cannibalism movie is Fried Green Tomatoes. Uh, <laughs> highly recommend that feminist film. <laughs> and I would eat the fuck out of that bastard to make sure there was not a scrap of evidence left. No problem. <laughs> that's that's uh, interesting. But in there too, is another good yeah. cannibal, cannibalism story. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you mentioned the slow loneliness piece though, Shara, because I feel like that's that's a really core piece of the story that we're looking at here. Um, and the only reason that I think we have sort of relationships building on, you know, whether or not you're going to create more cannibals is the fact that it's, it's explicitly stated it's it's lonely to be a cannibal, right? So like, that's interesting. So why is that? I want to explore that for just two seconds. Um, because I think it goes into the exact reason why we feel like eating meat is is potentially morally um, questionable. And so I feel like by eating another person, you're sort of changing that boundary between like not necessarily species, but self and other, right? The the in-group and the out-group. And as people, I think that's exactly why there's this taboo, because we see humans, of course, obviously, this is not surprising, as being different than every other living animal creature on the planet. When you sort of break down that barrier and you start to eat other humans, then obviously that circle restricts. And the only people that you can probably relate to as an in-group are other cannibals. But I think on the veganism scale, you're doing exactly the opposite, right? So you start to recognize the sentience in other species and other animals. And you say, there's really not much difference between the experience probably. And like, you know, obviously there are cognitive differences. Obviously there are cognitive differences. But from a perspective of there is something in this living creature looking out from behind those eyes, feeling things, experiencing things. And because of that, I can't bring myself morally to, you know, consume this creature, or like box this creature into a factory farm and produce it and make it live in this small cage just so that I can consume it for a little bit of extra pleasure. Right. I think it's the exact same thing, just in the opposite direction. Um, 
And so, like, I mean, that's probably why I think we we find that a little bit creepy, right? Is exactly what you're talking about, Noah, about kind of like that that sentience there. We see something in there, and because of that, it seems a little bit wrong to to kill that thing and eat it. Um, from a biological perspective, I don't think there's necessarily much difference. So, if you should be, if you if you're okay with eating an animal, I don't see why you wouldn't be okay with eating a deceased person. But to go ahead and answer the question that we have here, no, I think you guys are gross. I don't think I could ever, I don't think I could ever bring myself to eat another person. It's just too creepy. <laughs> so okay. uh, I love this point, Ben, and I also share your point. I want to tie them both together because uh, I think that it's bringing up an interesting connection. So um, Cher's point about loneliness. Yeah, we're obviously, we're social animals, just like Aristotle says. Uh, and and one thing which we might fear more than- death. You're talking about Aristotle, and he just pulled the perfect prop gag. History <laughs> <laughs> of deadly analysis. <laughs> I mean, all right, talk about Aristotle, I'm sorry. Okay. That was the best prop gag I, I think I've ever seen on YouTube. Where he just, all right, go ahead, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, so- and, and no, no one's losing it. <laughs> okay, uh, we're done. We're done. No, no, no. Uh, no. Uh, we've, got, we've gone to test pattern. Thanks no, a I lot, Ben. Aristotle. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ben. See what you did? God damn it. <laughs> it was the, I mean, I feel sorry for the people who just listened because they didn't get to see that. That was brilliant. <laughs> okay, go ben. ahead. What did he say? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So this is to Cher's point. Uh, Aristotle yeah. says we're social animals. And, and one of the things that we fear even possibly more than death is isolation, is, is, is loneliness, is, is not being accepted. Um, and so when it comes to something like more, you know, the morality of what we eat, um, probably what drives us actually is far less something like our conscience and far more something like simply fitting into an in-group. Um, most people in Western societies eat meat, but they only eat certain kinds of meat. You know, they, they, they eat cows, chickens, and pigs. They don't eat dogs. The prospect of eating a dog horrifies most Western people. It's clearly not a moral distinction. That's clearly something that's sort of socially learned. There isn't some clear moral difference between uh, pigs and dogs, for example. Um, and, and so by the same token, you know, if our, if our, if our in-group were to change, if we were to, if our were to become cannibals, then we would feel much more comfortable shifting that direction. So a lot of our behavior isn't so much driven by morality or moral psychology so much as it's driven by belonging. And that's true even for vegans and vegetarians. They, you know, it, it's very common for them to seek out communities. You know, there is a Vegans of Evansville, Indiana Facebook group where people come together and they share recipes and they do potlucks and stuff like that. And they do that because they know they need those social bonds to hold them together uh, uh, within their sort of uh, chosen communal food choices. So yeah, this, the, the theme of belonging, the theme of, of, of connecting is very much connected to the morality of eating meat. And that's, again, as you mentioned, Ben, quite explicit, this idea of it's lonely to be a cannibal. Um, and so I wanna take this th th that notion to the next sort of level with regard to the basic question. The basic question isn't just, would you eat meat if you had to, to survive? We're at the end of the film now. They don't need to eat human flesh to survive. They, they have the option of going back to being normal. And Robert Carlyle and Jeffrey Jones are eschewing that decision and they are embracing sure. the idea of we are now a breed apart. We are no longer like them. We feed on them. We prey on them. That elevates us and diminishes them. Um, 
That is a decision explicitly that most Westerners make with regard to non-human animals when it comes to eating. They see themselves as a breed apart. They see themselves, morally speaking, above it, uh, above the rest of the animals. Uh, and again, I don't mean necessarily mean to put it to the rest of you guys to answer this question, because again, I don't want to make it seem like I'm judging you or preaching to you or saying you ought to live this way or to live that way. But I want to just- sort God of damn vegans. <laughs> no, uh, I, I actually, I know where you're going with this. Look, here's the thing. Uh, I've shown documentaries to my child about uh, you know, dolphins and coves and how they treat cows. And for a long time, she was, a ve we were vegans for six years. Um, it made my daughter very uncomfortable to know these things. She got over it somehow. And it's probably because of culture. You know, it's probably because of the, you know, recipes that are constantly shown on television and, and the commercials and everything. It, we, we are inundated with it. But there is a, a fun fact about our society. We're not eating as much meat anymore. Like, it's exponentially going down. In fact, it's exponentially going down. And the thing is, is fossil fuels and animal eating is going to die out. It's going to be not a thing that'll be common in the future. If we last, if the whole entire globe doesn't just burst into flames. But that is where we're going. That is where everything is going. And that's progress. And that's, we can't stall, we can try to stall progress, but it won't, it won't happen. We have too much uh, access to information now. So I, I really don't think it's going to be that common. We have, we've actually been able to start making like fake meats now. So it, it's, it's probably not going to be as common. And then of course, what is going to happen when we're talking about cannibalism, would you do that? It's going to go to the point where few decades from now people are going to look back at how we eat and they're going to be like what the fuck you monsters and we're going to be like <laughs> we're old people we don't give a shit probably. we're going to be the carlisles we're going to be the the colonel ives um yeah yeah what, 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 the monsters it's what, ahistorical to believe that we're not tolerating something right now that our grandchildren will think is monstrous yeah and i mean right now we consider some of the the thoughts and ideas of people 50 years ago to be monstrous and backwards and ridiculous, especially as they relate to racial relations and, and uh, sexuality and, and, and acceptance of race and sexuality. We consider those, the, the thoughts of people 50 years ago to be monstrous. My suspicion is that 50 years from now, people will consider the way we treat animals to be in the same, in the same respect. I, yeah, I completely agree, which is interesting because when I watch Ravenous, there's a sense in which Carlisle tries to embody a kind of progress, the overman, the, the, the higher than. I'm going to eat these around me, I'm going to gain strength, and I'm going to become this alpha, this other thing, this sort of alpha predator. Um, that's There's a sense in which I think Carlisle, uh, Ives rather, uh, thinks of thinks of himself as, as a pioneer, a progress pushing forward, and it may just be because he's a Wendigo and that's it's sort of his nature at this point, but the reality seems to be like in our world, in the world we actually live in, progress is the reverse. Progress is going to be looking back on those who ate meat um, and seeing that as a negative thing. I find that to be very interesting. Um, you know, maybe progress isn't devouring and, and chewing meat and eating meat and being a, a, a carnivore. Maybe maybe progress is the complete opposite. Maybe we find uh, that we grow as a species um, and become something other, something greater by doing that. It's not going backwards, it's going forwards. But in this movie, it seems like forward progress to a, a, a group of people, not just uh, Ives, but um, the other character, I forget his name, who asks to 
uh, have uh, uh, Guy Pierce kill him. You know, it seems like that's progress. That's a push forward. So I, I don't know. I find that I find that distinction somewhat interesting. Well, can that's, I that's can I put forward a, a future a future? Mm. Maybe we can take our own genetic background and create our own meat and just eat ourselves. <laughs> and maybe that'll be our future meat. So like the quote at the beginning of the movie, eat me, it's like literal in the future. Eat me. Like you're really going to eat me. You could invite your friends over and be like, yeah, so I, I duplicated like parts of myself. Uh, today we're going to have my liver. So I hope all of you guys can enjoy all there my There is a horror movie about this. There no. is a horror movie about this. Um, I yes. thought I was, I thought yes. I was interesting. <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't recall the name. Maybe you guys will really quickly. It's set in the future, some sort of dystopian future where celebrities like sell their meat to people. They sell like flesh to people, like people that are obsessed with celebrity will buy meat from Keanu those people. Keanu Reeves is the most expensive right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, <laughs> and who, you know, who's in it is the redheaded kid from Byzantium. God damn it. I'll try to, I'll try to find out this movie. Eyebrows? But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's it. There, there's a movie like that where they, I guess they take the meat from celebrities and sell them and slabs to people who eat them. And they feel like they're a part of the celebrity. They're, they're eating them, then becoming them. I love uh, it because it was my idea anyway. So yeah, I, yeah. I'm going to check it out. I'll find it. <laughs> well, you guys will be getting, each of you will be getting a toe in the mail. So be looking for me. So be looking for that. Uh, Garrett, you're just going to have to decide if you're okay with it. If uh, you get the big toe. So just need to decide. Nibble I'll, it like and raw. Mm. I'll eat your hair. No, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I yeah. If you do that, do it in front of Jim. That's all I'm saying. Um, all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what <laughs> other what, existentialism? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're like zero for two with segues here. I just want to point thing. that out. Yeah. One thing. I'll, I'll segue oh, back into the the point uh, that we were talking about before. <laughs> about the toes. I do think that consent, if animals could consent to themselves being eaten, I do think that would make a little bit of a difference. Um, that's a little bit beside the point. Anyway, talking about the overman thing. So I do think that there's a little bit of a, one other additional layer here that I just, I just want to point out. Um, I think it's worth noting that, of course, I think whenever we, we talk about that and maybe ponder that ideal of the, the thing that we're going to think about stereotypically or like archetypically is, is going to be Colonel Ives' character. But from my own interpretation, I really do feel like that's kind of like the sort of like the Ayn Rand bastardization of Nietzschean philosophy. Um, I, I think it's it's in his perspective, it's a little more excess. You know what I mean? It's 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 taking it to an extent that doesn't really make sense within the framework. If we're really going to think about what Nietzsche might have meant by the Overman, I think that's going to be a little bit more closely related to the character of Boyd. And this is the one, the one element of praise that I'll give the writing for this character is that throughout the entire story, we don't see the norms and the morals stopping him from protecting his own survival. He says, meat is a last resort, but I'll be damned if he's not okay with eating someone's leg if it means surviving. You know what I mean? So it's like he's not hes not an absolutist. He's not, you know, kowtowing to these, these moral ideals, you know, just, just because. Like, he really gives this consideration, and when it really comes down to it, he is willing to sort of supersede or supervene those ideals to make sure that he's able to survive as a person he eats whatever his name like the the other the guy that was supposed to be like the soldier character he eats his leg he eats the stew at the ending 
Um, and he uses that strength to survive and sort of like maybe potentially for what you might consider the greater good. And so if we're going to think about what really progress might mean and what the overman might be, I think it's it's something like that, where it's like you recognize the ideals for what they are, you recognize their utility, and then by recognizing them in their full value, you also understand when it's probably a good idea to abandon those ideals and move forward, situationally speaking. Shut up Just to throw that out there. The, the, the actor who played the, the soldier was Neil McDonough, and I think he's a really good actor and who deserves some 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 recognition. Um, yeah. Somewhat uh, disappointed that his role was cut short in this film uh, for that reason. Uh, but to your point, Ben, yeah, I think you're right. That that, that one simple read of this could be uh, as sort of the, the, the shallow version of, of, of the Nietzschean overman that, who's just willing to do whatever just because he can. And I think that's definitely a, mis a misreading, uh, but a fairly common one. Um, and I, I, I like your analysis of Boyd as being more of a Nietzschean uh, hero. It's worth noting that for much of the film, he's explicitly resisting orders. He's explicitly not doing what other people tell him to do. Uh, you know, he, he capitulates sometimes, um, but uh, uh, he, he's, he's not a good soldier in that respect. Uh, he doesn't follow orders. And, and, and that's something, again, I think that Nietzsche would, uh, would admire and recognize. All right, so that's all I had there. If we want to go into existentialism. Yeah. Oh, I, I just want to throw out, you're absolutely right, Garrett. And that's actually something that Daniel pointed out uh, when we were watching it is that's that's part of being a proper soldier, actually, is being able to say no. Um, that is a lot of people have this idea that a soldier is supposed to just fall in line all the time. But you actually do have uh, an important role as a soldier to be able to say no when something goes against what we're allowed to do. Um, and that is what differentiates certain governments from fascist governments, right? Um, when you have a government where you can say, no, we're not going to just eat people. That's not okay. <laughs> I know I'm not going to take that as an order. Um, but I will say that, that part of what he used as a way to control that situation was by gaslighting him and making it seem like he's the crazy person, that he's the person harming others, that he's the person that is that is causing danger. And this actually happened in the movie Gaslighting uh, or Gaslight, uh, that this is actually a term that came from that movie, uh, is this idea that the crazed narcissist is going to make you seem crazy make you seem like the monster, make you seem like, and, and in a way, I guess he was a monster because, you know, after the situation of dealing with this guy, he became a bit of a monster, but it, it was someone who's a more experienced monster using that as a way to uh, make the new monster look crazier, if that makes any sense. And so I think that's why that song and dance between the two of them, that sexual tension almost, it was it it just vibrated throughout the film because this is this is what happens when you have experience and not experience, right? You are lost in this situation. You don't know what's going on, and you're just now learning about this stuff. And someone whose experience can make you look like the bad guy, um, and, and that happens in real life every day in all different kinds of relationships. So, uh, where someone's more experienced might hurt and harm you or make you look like the bad guy or the monster. 
I want to quickly throw this out there because I want to bring it back to what Noah said earlier on about the, the homosexual undertones. Uh, the, 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 the similarities between cannibalism and the, again, the sense of doing something that corrupts you, makes you subhuman, makes you like an animal, and you know, a, a, a common demonization of homosexuals. This is something that corrupts you, that makes you subhuman, uh, or should not be missed. And I, 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 I think it's interesting, again, with existentialism in mind, one of the explicit themes of existentialism was precisely sort of to overturn those kind of received views about sexuality, about what, what proper sexuality is. I would not be surprised if Jean-Paul Sartre said a thing or two about cannibalism somewhere, but I don't know off the top of my head if he ever did. Um, but uh, but it, it's you know, the, 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 the parallels between uh, the, the rules about what we eat and the rules about what we fuck are... Uh, 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 certainly, I think, present in this film and not lost on existentialist thought in general. That actually brings me to something a comedian, or probably many comedians, have brought up. For some reason in our culture, it's okay to kill and eat an animal, but if you fuck it, that's wrong. What the? That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of in my whole life. Clearly, you've never been to Scotland, so that's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. We're going to check the analytics for this video in our Scotland viewership standard. <laughs> straight down. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I was looking at Jean-Paul Sartre and cannibalism. There's a lot to dig through, so I don't, I don't, I don't have much to offer there. Um, yeah. I, uh, look, all I'm going to say is this. There's a lot of puffs of a cigarette in this movie. More than normal. That's all I'm saying. A uh, lot of scenes. A lot of scenes with that. You know what I mean? Are you saying smoking is somewhat homoerotic? Okay, when you say that that way next to Garrett, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know where this is going. I've seen this movie a couple of times. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just really quickly, like, we'll, we'll stay on the, the theme of existentialism, but I really liked Ben's idea of Boyd being kind of the picture of a kind of picture of, of a kind of overman, of overcoming, of transcending his own values. Because you're right, the cheap way, I think Garrett said this, like the lazy way, the cheap way to look at this would be, well, clearly Robert Carlyle's character has overcome, and there's even that scene where he talks about morality. Remember that? Morality. That's the it's the easy way to do that. But why is, he, why is the overman, why are those characters always portrayed as villains? That there, There's a real like myopic sort of understanding, I think, with that sort of philosophy. And to look at Boyd, as the person who stays in line with his values until it becomes necessary not to is a really interesting way to look at this. And I had not thought of that. Um, so that really is something I'm gonna chew on. No, pun it, Jesus, that was completely accidental. That is something I'm gonna chew on. That's a really cool thought. Um, it's almost like, I don't know if you guys have ever, uh, Garrett, you may know that, I don't know if you guys have ever uh, read Nietzsche's uh, three meta uh, little piece he has on the three metamorphosis, where the, 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 the uh, uh, person, it's the camel who transforms into a lion who then transforms into a baby. But um, Boyd strikes me as, as kind of the camel. He strikes me as someone who's burdened in the context of Nietzsche. I think it's a religious, it's a religious kind of burden. It's not a, a kind of ethical burden in, in anywhere near the, the world of cannibalism or, or eating meat. But we could use that and, and, and say, this is someone who clearly is burdened. He's burdened with, hey, just give in, just give in. It's going to make you better. Just give in. This isn't hard. Give in. Um, he's burdened with a, a, a strong, an internal struggle of sorts, and um, I think, I think by the end of the movie, becomes a kind of lion. I think that last step of becoming a baby is something that's completely separate 
uh, sort of looking at the world differently, creating your own values writ large, like starting over is essentially how that would be 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 looked at. But I think I think Boyd is somewhere between a camel and a lion in this movie. Um, I'm really going to think about that after this now. Uh, so I kudos to Ben for making me chew on that. That's a really cool idea. I, I just didn't even think of that. I always, I, I, I had the sophomoric idea of looking at Robert Carlyle as the overman. Clearly, this is the overman morality. You know that kind of thing. But I, there's this, there's this horrifying part of the film. There's a horrifying line in this film that really fucking resonated with me, and it's only because of what's going on today. So yeah, I'm going to get political for two seconds. There was a line that he said about how they're all going to come together. There's going to be people coming through here, you know, moving out to this area uh, and, and we'll organize it in a way we would never split up families. We'll, we will not split up families. We're, we're going to figure out our food, but we're never going to split up families. And I was like, oh my God, this monster is more moral than we are right now. And it hurts. It hurt every fiber of every part of my being that this cannibalistic Wendigo guy is more moral than us today. And it, I don't know. I felt like 20 years later, it was, it was trying to stab us in the gut. And I felt like that was the most horrific part of the whole film. It actually hurt when I heard him say those words. So, yeah. uh, I didn't catch that, Shayra. I think that's a good get. And same, same, Ben. Uh, you know, Noah's been. I, I like your interpretation of Boyd as the, uh, you know, Ubermensch. And and it, I want to go back to something you talked about. You you mentioned his jump off the cliff as a act of cowardice, and I think that that might, especially with Ben's interpretation of Boyd's character in mind. That, that's actually an incredibly existentialist move and a rather smart move because he knows he's not going to be able to take on Carlisle. He just shot Carlisle in the, in the shoulder and he got up and laughed at him. So that is sort of an expression of radical freedom. I, can, I know I can't go through this, so I'm, I'm going to take my own... Uh, you know, I, I have the freedom to take my own life or at least chance it by jumping off this cliff. So I think that's like a key scene in seeing Boyd as an existentialist hero. And I don't think it's, I mean, you you characterized it as cowardice a little bit ago and and I kind of went, oh, yeah, I guess it is. But now I'm like, no, you're wrong because Ben says so. The imagery is definitely Kierkegaardian, obviously the leap of faith being sort of uh, uh, crucial in there. I'm not sure it fits though beyond just the, on the imagistic side. Um, uh, it, you know, within the Kierkegaardian leap of faith, you know, the whole idea is precisely that you're surrendering yourself to something greater than yourself, something that you do not understand. And uh, that doesn't seem to me at least to be in play. He, he's well, running away because he's afraid. I think no, I think it's more along the lines of what Sartre talks about is if I'm chained up, um, sure, I'm imprisoned, but I have the freedom to be able to just scratch at the chains until perhaps I can I can break through. Like it's it's more of that. That's the way I was thinking about it, rather than a Kierkegaardian sense. More more in the line of what Sartre was talking about. I mean, I think for uh, for for Sartre's sort of vision to take place again, it precisely has to be an acceptance of your own responsibility. You're right. You're, radical freedom is half of it, but accepting responsibility for what you do on the other end uh, uh, is 
is sort of key to that. Now, if you to, to your credit, again, one of the first things that happens after he makes that leap is he he uh, engages in cannibalism. He eats Neil McDonough's leg. Uh, and at no point does does he seem to have any remorse for that particular act. Right. Uh, and that I think is is more in line with what Sartre is saying. He's, he's mm-hmm. he has the freedom to choose. He's choosing, and he and he's accepting responsibility for that choice. Um, but I still say the leap of the, the leap off the cliff. Uh, uh, I see it in his face. It, seems, it looks to me uh, far less. I'm exercising my radical freedom, and far more. I am terrified of this un- inhuman killing machine in front of me. Ben, agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do got to say, I have to say that I feel like the more cowardly decision would have been to like just to drop to his knees and beg for his life. But maybe that's I, you know, I can't I can't tie this back to any particular philosophy, but maybe that's just because I really appreciate the aesthetic of, you know, running headlong in, in into your own demise kind of right and like just sort of, you know, just accepting your own kind of like finality and fatality and saying, well, you know, fuck it, I might as well go for it. Right. Kind of like embracing death as an old friend sort of thing. Um, you know, I don't know if I can really, that. yeah, it's something like that. Something like that. The limbs a lot. Okay. <laughs> like he definitely was trying to buffer the fall. He obviously wanted to live. He thought he could make it and he did. And on top of that, I don't know if you noticed, he used the limbs to like hang on for dear life to try to buffer the fall, uh, used the dead body of his friend as a way to buffer the tumble. And then when they get down into this pit, You'll notice that after he was done eating his friend to heal, uh, he was dead anyway. Who fucking cares, right? He eats his friend to heal. And then he actually emerges out of the tree limbs that saved his life as like a fucking cocoon. Like he was reborn as a butterfly. And I was like, whoa, what the hell is going on? Like the magical Wendigo fucking butterfly (laughs) well not only that not only that but how did you guys miss this right before he jumps off of the cliff he looks at the camera and he says you know the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion and then he jumped off how did you guys miss that solves the whole dilemma solves it all so there yeah (laughs) Um, i I want to just sort of Throw in sort of almost his footnotes after a couple more existentialist thinkers here. Um, Harkening back to our earlier conversation about veganism, uh, Maurice Morley Ponty uh, uh, has has an interesting place in which he draw, thinks the the line is drawn for for the morality of eating animals, and it's uh, it, it's whether or not they have faces. Uh, uh, sort of his construct basically is uh, you know anything with a face can look back at us, and when someone when someone or something looks back at you, you become conscious of your own selfness. You're the, the, you, you see the contrast between self and other reflected there, uh, and and that's the origin of conscious conscience, the origin of the sense of I am being looked at as an agent, I am being judged, and therefore what I do uh, I can be assessed morally speaking. Uh, so something that has a face can do that to you, uh, whereas something that, that lacks a face cannot. Um, so there's a, a slightly more uh, obscure existentialist approach to the, 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 the veganism issue. And I think that's also why we get more, I at least get more queasy about um, like pigs on spits when it's the full pig. Don't make fun of Filipino people. My daughter's at a Filipino party right now and they literally are roasting an entire pig. I'm just saying. I'm just, no, I'm just joking with you. Those are two different things. <laughs> I'm just joking with you, but literally my daughter just sent me a picture of uh, the barbecue she's at and there's a literal pig on a spit right now. Uh, that's so. Yeah, see, I mean, that's a, 
the head is attached. I mean, one of the things we do very specifically to reduce the horror of eating meat is detach it from uh detach it from the animal, detach it from the face. Um, it, it's beef that's ground up. So it almost yeah. seems un, 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 like it's not attached to an actual living being. You wrap um, it in cellophane so you can disassociate it from the actual living creature that it once was. Exactly. I mean, I, I told you this story before, but I was incredibly annoying once, just absolutely ridiculously annoying. Uh, we got a, a big bot of, uh, what do they come in buckets of uh kfc and i rebuilt the chicken out of what was uh what was there and uh yeah, jim that was, that's pretty fucked up buddy i i, I love that but that's pretty messed you up you are man. the most <laughs> fucked up of all of us you win yay all right um well i i have a I have did a you start singing it. sledgehammer while you did that Sledgehammer. <laughs> Yeah. Oh uh, my God. If there if is I, a hell, we are all going to do it. Never take me to fried chicken with well, you. Yeah, that's, that's can I, can I say one thing real, real quick about this? Um, you're totally right. And I, I, I kind of have a, a real world example for me. So I, you know, I'm a meat eater. It's only because I'm weak. The ethics of it, I, I won't get into. I, I agree with the ethics of veganism. I am just weak as fuck and I'm an idiot. And I, 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 that's the way I look at it. Right. So um, I've had pork all my life. I was watching an episode of Anthony Bourdain, No Reservations. Um, love that show. And there was this one place, I forget where it is now, but it was a tribe uh, out in like the middle of the jungle that basically invited him to eat uh, like a like a, a pig on a spit, like where it you know, rotates and all that crap. But they, uh, they wanted him to kill the pig. Like it was their thing. It was their custom. He kills the pig. He had no problem doing it. Uh, well... I should say he got very drunk first, so maybe he did have a problem doing it. You can watch the episode online, but I remember watching it with my wife, and um, he has a very philosophical, he, he says some things about killing animals, and basically that he's so, like, something to the effect of, I've seen enough in this world that this does nothing to me, and he, that he says something like that, and then he stabs the pig in the heart, and you can hear it screaming, and you don't see it, you just see Anthony Bourdain thrusting this spear into the heart of uh, this pig. And I lost my shit. I was so upset by that. It, it bothered me to no end. I mean, it really affected me. I've never forgotten it. And I thought to myself, I'm the same person who'll go to the grocery store tomorrow and pick up a bunch of pork and, and bacon and all like without thinking twice. So I think you're right. There is something to be said with you know detaching in the way that we do because I've been eating that all my life in that little one scene and you're not even seeing it you're just hearing the death of a pig you're hearing it squeal in pain and it's never left me um it bothers me to this day and I, I think it has something to do with what you were describing well even the way cannibalism is portrayed in this film it's it's still detached like you don't yeah right? Except for that scene in the pit, you very rarely get to see faces of those who are being eaten. Yeah, it's stew. It's it's stew, right? right? Stew, or it's just like a piece of meat, and it's you were given to understand that it came from from a. Uh, the only meat. thing that they portrayed as disgusting, and I think this goes back to, uh, I know this is going to end up being a show we do with Garrett uh, about Texas Chainsaw Massacre being about veganism, honestly. But uh, it, it, the only disgusted part of the the film, the only point where he pukes, is when just 
meat was put in front of him. That grossed him out. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, oh, but that yeah. opening sequence in general, I think, is worth talking about, right? Because uh, th there is something that many people find just disgusting about the, the sound of other people chewing. And I think you know, the sound design in that scene and the editing was really nicely done because it precisely sort of amplified to a almost hyper-realistic degree the stuff sounds yeah. of everyone eating. And yeah, that was pretty disgusting. And you know, even if you're not sort of naturally put off by that, I think you, that scene can sort of help you sympathize with people who are. Ben, what were you going to say? You you had your... Uh... I got to say, I am one of those people. Like if I hear people chewing too loudly, it, it tends to get under my skin and I can't stop thinking about it and I can't not hear it. So I, yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely understand that. But... Says the guy who was chewing meat by his mic. Thank you. Made me hungry. I, I don't. It's such a common sound that it's completely muted. I just, it's psychologically speaking, it just my brain tunes it out. So I'm okay with it, I guess. I don't, but yeah, okay, okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like skip rock through a few different things here really quick. So yes, Noah, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense, and I want to talk about this too because I've, I've honestly, even from people who live in the country, and I feel like we're a little bit close to, a little bit closer to the farming community, and so we're a little bit closer to the reality of animal farming and like slaughter. You know, there are a lot of people that I feel like they just want to go to McDonald's and they want to have their chicken nuggets, but they don't want to know where those chicken nuggets come from. And they don't want to have any conception that it comes from a chicken that, you know, is raised in a cage for its entire life and then ends up getting slaughtered and, you know, it has like a life and stuff. And like when you start bringing that up, that really freaks people out. And I mean, I, I think that if we want to tie that back to the perception of a face, I do think that has a lot of merit, too, because, I mean, for whatever reason, like there's there's this phenomenon that we we know exists in human psychology where we'll see faces where they don't exist and i think that's plenty enough evidence to suggest that we look for faces and we'll pick up on that pattern and it means something to us even if it's not on a living animal right even if it's not on a human we look for faces everywhere that's why people see jesus and toast and shit because we we're trained to look for those patterns and it has a deeper significance for us somewhere. Now, I also do know that whenever we think about looking at a face and thinking about that psychologically, there's this specific development in the prefrontal cortex that sort of like connects our cognition with our emotions. Like it, it goes from that sort of like higher order thinking back down to our kind of like baser, more like emotional kind of like lizard brain instincts. And I think it's hypothesized, at least in the research, that that's where empathy comes from. So if we really want to, if we really want to take this like to the full loop, I do think there is a lot of merit in saying that we have some sort of mechanism that looks for faces, that that ties somehow into our higher order, higher order thinking about how we divvy up sort of like self versus other and in-group versus out-group and how that might tie back into our baser emotions, which I think personally is probably the source for the entire concept of morality, right? I mean, for at least from my my opinion, um, I can't like cite research from like moral I philosophy on this too much, but I research. really think, can you? I, yeah, okay, so this recently came out that we evolved dogs to make the faces they make at us to have us empathize with them and to feed them and to care for them the way that we do. And I think it's interesting that you're bringing up the facial stuff. Uh, when Noah was talking about he'd probably save his dog over his, his you know, fellow man, right? Like that has literally been evolved that way. Like dogs have evolved that way to make us attach that way. They know how to evolve their face and make certain facial expressions now. Uh, because of the way that we've bred them. 
so that they can tug on their, our heartstrings in that particular way so that we will feed them and be friends with them and and treat them as a family member. And that's how they've survived. That's how their species has made it as far as they have. And so I find it fascinating when you're bringing up faces because that is literally just a, a scientific study that came out was that dogs evolved faces. <laughs> and I know they had faces, but uh, they uh, evolved a certain kind of face that appeals to us where we see these cute little puppy eyes and like, oh, you can give me a French fry. Oh, you can give me a French fry. And, and we appeal to that. So um, it's interesting to think about animal husbandry and how we've evolved. Pigs used to be, you know, black haired, long snout, you know, some teeth coming out of certain areas. Now they're these cute little pink, little pink. And, and, uh, and I've worked on a farm um, and I, I've lived on a farm and I've been surrounded by the cutesy wootsy animals and I love them and I wouldn't eat them, but I did cook burgers in front of them. I was a fucked up individual in some ways, right? Okay. So did I was you like, feed, you're Did you cute. feed the burgers to them? No, <laughs> I didn't do cannibalism, but I was just like, here's your brothers, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you're cute and not the burger. And, and, and I, I detached them. And so this is how, this is how I'll put it. We use chickens to make eggs on our farm. Right. And, uh, some of the chickens were assholes and they treated others like shit and they would beat the other ones up and like hurt them. And we were like, you know what? You're not really helping out in this situation. And we'd eat those chickens. And then, you know, we, we kind of keep making the chickens that were nice and it was our way of, that's what animal husbandry has been throughout the ages with humanity, right? We're like, oh, you're a dick. You you get eaten. And, and the nice ones, the cute ones, we, I swear to God, it's what we do. I don't know why that's what we humans do. Yeah, um, I mean, it sounds like a, a mechanism co of co-evolution, right? I mean, like, I think there's, like, stuff that ties that back to infants. And there's there's a reason that, like, infants sort of, like, trigger this oxytocin response in mothers. And it's because of this sort of, like, cherub sort of look that they kind of have and like maybe cuter babies elicit a little bit more empathy but like there is definitely like a configuration of the face and facial expressions that tap into that and so i think there's definitely merit in that idea right but okay so like i there's one extra thing that i want to throw out here and so this is goes all the way back to the the camel thing that noah was talking about and so like this is going to be a separate thing if, if you guys want to skip this and go back to the morality discussion that's fine but i want to go back into this because the the topic of burden and of giving into the burden and of the religious shit that comes up in this film, you know, I, I think there's, there's this huge rich sort of vein for conversation there. And I would, I would, I would really regret it if we didn't at least bring that up at least one time. And like, uh, anyway, so I, I love the imagery that we have here and the fact that one native American person draws direct attention to the fact that our like number one sort of like Western kind of like one of the main beliefs and i won't call it a superstition but it's a religious belief that if we eat the body and drink the blood of this jewish man that lived two thousand years ago we will literally obtain immortality you know what i mean so it's like it's sort of ingrained within this like mainline stream of thought in western sort of like white people like predominant at least but like globally like i mean it's it's pretty big like when you think about catholicism they literally believe that there's this miracle that occurs in this sort of transfiguration whenever they take communion, that the materials that they consume literally transform into the body of Christ. And they consume these with the belief that that sort of affirms their faith and they're taking in Christ. And that sort of like 
I don't know, like guarantees their salvation or something. I I don't know. Maybe I'm a little fuzzy on the details. It's the doctrine of tra- transubstantiation. 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 Yeah. Substantiation. Yeah. Sorry. It's transubstantiation. Lapsed Catholic. What's that? Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> You'd call me a lapsed Catholic. Um, yeah, it, they literally believe that the bread literally transla- transforms into flesh. into the flesh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So if you think yeah. about this, um, and and please feel free to jump back into this in just one second. But if you think about this and the fact that uh, Colonel uh, Ives, right? Ives, Colonel Ives, yep. he's telling he's telling Boyd just to say, you know, just give in, give in to me, give over your burdens. Uh, my my yoke is easy and my burden light kind of shit. Like, you know, he's saying, just give in, just give it away. Just give up your, you know, inhibitions, just like buy into this, consume the blood, consume the body and give in to me. And so like, I really feel like if we want to consider Ives as kind of like this really dark, twisted Christ figure, I, I really think that ties back into the idea that maybe Boyd is is literally again, the the ideal of the ubermensch sort of like mentality and that philosophy because he's sort of rejecting that dark christ figure that's saying take in the body and blood and give over your burdens to me and like all this shit will go well for you in the end right like it's going to be fine just give in consume this and accept me you know and don't forget and don't forget that ives is running around in the third act with a cross on his head oh yeah yeah well i think i think ben to your point ives whether he's seen as an overman or not, has a particular set of ethics that he's demanding be put on Boyd. And to that extent, right, like you must conform to the way I see things. That That is what uh, 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 Colonel Ives is essentially th- thrusting onto Boyd. You will make this, you will do this, right? And so, and so far as Boyd is overcoming that sort of thing, regardless of how we cash out the the religiosity or the ethics of it, that's still how ha- that's fundamentally what's going on. So I think that that makes sense. I, I really that, like your interpretation. That's that set up earlier too, when Colonel Hart, Jeffrey Jones's character, is telling uh, uh, is telling Boyd, "Come on, we have to do this. It's our duty." And he has to sort of drag him along in this regard. And 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 in both instances, uh, uh, Boyd is uh, standing. Uh, a, a thrust history and saying no and, and refusing. Yeah, I mean, I think the, all of that sort of ties into a lot of what Ben's saying and, and makes a lot of sense there. Wait, no. Um, he's he's the deontologist that... of the group, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Does this mean that this film is uh, saying rebellion is morally correct then? Well, I don't know if it's rebellion. I think it's I think it's the overcoming of a strict ethic, right? It's it, it's something like that. I think it's I think it's the it's the working through of your own ethics. I think it's the overcoming of um, a kind of it, it's ha- it's how much plasticity you're willing to bend and are you willing to go outside of it when pushed to that degree, right? So um, I, I I think it's something like that. I mean, you can cash that out as rebellion, I guess. Um, but I, I, I think that's really what it comes down to. You guys are, I, this is great. This is why I love this podcast. Cause you're flipping the way I initially saw the ethics of this movie. You're, you've literally, Ben has literally flipped my entire way of looking at this movie. And it, I'm, my mind's kind of blown by this. Um, 
Boyd really is like that. And you're right. Ives is a Christ figure in that sense. And and, and that works on many levels in the sense that Christ, you know, this certain interpretation, a very prominent interpretation is that to get to heaven, you come through Christ, right? Um, and so there is, this is the way. In fact, early Christians were called the way. It's like the way, right? With a capital T, the way. Well, Boyd is going, well, I don't want that way. I know, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go beyond that, above and beyond that, right? That is so the opposite of how I first looked at this. I saw Colonel Ives as the one who, you know, transcended an ethic. But I like the idea that that's a very, I, I'm really liking the idea that that's a very sophomoric way to look at it, especially since he's the antagonist of this movie. Uh, like, anyway. I do think that I do think that I, I still hold the, the, the opinion that I, I feel like I've shows more character development or at least he changes personas at least halfway through and like maybe that's like He's the shadow wearing of a mask first. Yeah, except maybe that's why I <laughs> like him. I don't think by the way that performance of the mask of oh, and I'm so timid and uh, like that was especially so with the Scottish bad. accent that I I've said this before. I'll say it again. Like, if you you could be talking all the shit in the world, if you say it in a, with a Scottish accent, I'll just agree with you. You know, like I, I yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I, I fell I, for it. I <laughs> fell for it. I felt sorry for him. Did any of you guys like? I felt sorry for him. I thought they needed to save him. I probably would have saved him. Stupidly. I think I would have saved him too. I mean, after all, there is a, a certain degree of. If it's our duty, then that is the thing that we have to do. Uh, I think Ben would have eaten him, from what I'm, I'm uh, judging. Yeah. Just, no, yeah. I think we already determined that eating humans is gross. Clearly, clearly, <laughs> eating humans is where we draw the line. Hey, uh, so I, I'd be remiss. There's a ton of topics I know we can get into. I like manifest destiny. That there's some of that in this, right? Like, I, 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 there's there's political stuff here going on. Sort of. Thank you. Like, oh, you? Right. Okay. So. Um, yeah, sorry. go, go. No, I just, I literally just wanted to say it. Smarter people go. <laughs> I want to criticize the film itself for, for, for a couple of things here. Got first. it. Uh, so the, they use this very cool, interesting device of the Wendigo. Uh, in, and they give a head nod to the fact that, it, that the, this was not local folklore to California. Uh, the, the Wendigo is an Algonquin myth, which is northern Canada. Uh, and so the film is kind of like, eh, Native Americans are all the same, you know, like, you know there's no difference between these uh, many different tribes. We can just import the folklore from one tribe to another. Um, and that's kind of insulting um, and it's pretty cheap. Uh, not the least of which, because I think there's a pretty simple fix here that you could have just set the fucking thing in Canada. I would, I mean, you know, it wouldn't have been that much more difficult to have done that. Uh, you, you would have to obviously rearrange some of, some of the Mexican American war materials or something like that. But it could be done quite easily, um, uh, and, and that and, and a fairly minimal gesture have been more respected to the native cultures that they're explicitly borrowing on for the purposes of their entertainment. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like that level of laziness is also very '90s. Another show in the '90s that does that particular thing, and it's still one of my favorite shows ever, is The X Files. The X Files does that exact same thing. It borrows and it's very lazy with the actual background of a lot of the monsters. Um, and I, 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 so I, it, I instinctively want to think, boy, back then they did that a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a whole native trope that's being played out through this film and through other films of the eighties and nineties. I mean, remember poltergeist guy, poltergeist is, uh, the house is built on a native burial ground and that's why they're ghosts. Um, like there's, 
Well, the shining, it, the shining too. And shining, it's built on a native burial ground, and that's why there are ghosts. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a this sense that native are uh, natives sort of underwrite a sense of mysticism, and natives underwrite a whatever kind of bullshit you want to make for your movie. You just say, well, it's a native thing, and then suddenly you can play around with it. That's demeaning. That's demeaning to native uh, tribes, native history, and it's sort of using native folklore as a plot device rather than sort of respecting native traditions. And in What's... that sense, I'm I'm along the same lines as you are, Garrett. When I'm not necessarily comfortable with how the natives are treated in this film, many of them don't have much agency. The male native character is killed off rather quickly. The female native character doesn't have much agency. Her job there is just to sort of spout off some native mystical exposition in order to sort of underwrite the, oh yeah, eating people gives you superpowers bullshit. And they're both given Western names rather Correct. than more Oh yeah, that's a good point. Even though they What's are, uh, I, they are actual native uh, actors yes. who are playing at, a le part. at least there's that. At least there's that instead of people playing quote unquote red face. They uh, almost got Scarlett Johansson to play both of them. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. It's gonna be Scarlett Johansson or Emma Stone, one of the two. I think let's let's at least go ahead and broaden that at least for the horror genre to say I feel like it's it's in the West in America and the United States it's minorities that I feel like play that exact same role in a lot of horror films where they have like this mystical quality where they come in to explain this or that mythology or like this supernatural thing and then the white people kind of deal with the main problem right um, right I think that's super super common and and not obviously a, a, a great thing it's like it's not a great legacy and honestly i feel like i, I want to take this back as i was doing my research for this podcast i read a review on rogerebert.com and i feel like they they referred to these people as indians and i feel like that's really fucked up because like we learned as as europeans coming to this land almost immediately that these were not people from india and yet we still continue to this day to call them indians and like that's that's really fucked up but even like if we call them native americans i feel like that's still like american centric and it might be a little more appropriate to call them like first nations i don't know like to refer to these people as like you know these different tribes because that at least gives the idea that we're not talking about a homogeneous group with homogeneous ideologies and homogeneous mythologies which goes into exactly the problem that we're talking about here but if I could, if I could just for two seconds bitch about this review on RogerEbert.com, they literally go through the entire cast and say, we have this person playing this character who does this, and this person playing this character who does this, and then some Indians. I mean, that is literally the quote. That is literally the quote. I don't know if it's Ebert who wrote this, but it's on that website. I encourage you to go check this out. And it really bothers me about this movie. Like, that's one of the main criticisms. I was going to save this until my, like, outro or whatever, but... Man, that's messed up. And I really hope we start to see that disappear from horror movies moving forward. I really do. Yeah. But there's no excuse for this shit. There's no excuse for this shit because uh, there were plenty of films that were coming out in the 90s that were very, very much understanding of colonialism. And even if they were kind of wonky and weird and, and crazy like this one, think of Dead Man, uh, where you had actual people who were native and they were portraying normal characters, not like weird, mystical, ooh, and, and they're just hanging out with people and, and experiencing life and 
maybe trying to give some uh, advice to some of the dumbass characters that they're dealing yeah. with. But I, I was going to ask, I, perfect. I, Shayra mentioned one, but I was going to ask on that note, are, are there any in the 90s that you think do this well? I mean, uh, I... Smoke Signals is made by Sherman Lexi, a, a native. And, and to your point, uh, Ben, um, some native... Uh, actual natives uh, refer to themselves both as Indians, as Native Americans, as indigenous people, as First Nations. So that whole, the the whole sort of politically correct linguistic thing gets gets uh, a little wonky when you are are reading Robert Warrior essays and he's calling them Indians, et cetera, calling him- I prefer him, in uh, this situation, saying Algonquin when sure. we talk about Wendigo because yeah, that's actual tribe is appropriate. Yeah, you're right. right there. But Smoke Signals is a a native film, native made film that deals with native issues uh, intelligently. Um, there are some more, I actually really liked Wind River in its portrayal of native issues. Uh, there's some people who disagree with me about that, but um, I really well, like Wind to, River to, and Go ahead. I was just going to say, to be more specific, are there any good horror films that do this well? So we're, we're, we're making the critique of sort of Native Americans within this horror film being the magical, tropey, you know, they 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 tell us about the antagonist and it's this monster, it's this Wendigo, and they're they're treated to have, you know, no agency in this movie. Are there any horror films in the around this time in the late 90s, maybe even mid to late 90s, that... Um, gives them a, a modicum of respect in that regard that's better like the x-files again is notorious for for not doing this in every way that they have the i i said this before in a previous podcast danielle and i um went through the x-files uh just over a month watched all of them and they use the same music whenever they're in in different episodes whenever there is kind of an ethnic person giving wisdom when there's a jamaican in a prison talking about voodoo they use a, the same music that they use when there's a person in India doing something magical, which is the same music they use. It, it's it's amazing to me, and I I, I noticed it instantly. So I, there's plenty of examples of doing it poorly. Are there any examples just instantly that you can think of that come to mind that do it well? Well, I think the best horror films that use that the horror films that do it well are the ones that don't de deploy this trope right so it would be the horror films that don't need a native uh a, a native person to to you know exposit mysticism those would be the examples that i would that i would go to because what we're talking about here is a negative trope so the good films are the ones it's just the removal of it where it's yeah. not it's non-existent okay exactly. well, hold on hold on what, pet what, cemetery. One but it's pet cemetery in the poo poo place because we don't actually have you know native americans involved they just use their land to do the stupid stuff that causes all the problems yeah, I mean, I think even the mention of native cultures yeah. as a, a as, as sort of a a um, a cover for this is an example of deploying the trope. Now, certainly, Pet Cemetery is less guilty of it than than this plays than this film, um, and less guilty of it than Poltergeist, and less guilty of it than Shining. Although Shining is sort of a just a throwaway line. Um, I, in, in any case, I think one of the, actually, you know, since you did a great video on horror film, 
uh, father figures. I think uh, an even longer video could be made of all of the films that mention Native uh, Native Americans as sort of a cover for their mysticism. You've been doing some research. Yeah, here. yeah. Um, I, I just did some quick Googling. I couldn't find any films that I could personally vouch for. There, there are several films which seem like they might do this, but they very well just might do it terribly as well. So I don't want to mention anything in particular. But something which does come to mind, it's not a 90s film. It's not even technically a film either. It's a TV show. But uh, no, I believe you watched The Terror, um, which... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, again, I, I would want to to consult with people who know more about Native American issues than me on, on their opinions on this before fully vouching it. But that, that would be someplace where I would want to explore because it seems to me like the, the, the Native peoples are treated with more uh, respect. respect. Yeah. And, and valued and they have lots of autonomy and they play crucial parts in the, the the narrative that aren't simply plot devices yeah and i, I think in that show in a large part it's the, a lot of it is a is a lesson like not listening not understand yeah so i i agree with you i agree with you i can recommend a few books as well there's uh ceremony and uh the trickster of liberty liberty um those are two books that are sort of they're not really horror books but they're they kind of deal with native mysticism and they're written by actual native authors mm. and so in that sense there's uh there's there's more authenticity there and instead of sort of white people you know taking native issues and sort of glomming them onto their kind of mystical uh plot line this is this is something that has a little bit more authenticity um those are two books that I, I remember liking quite a bit. Um, so I'm not sure if you've seen this, and I'm going to recommend it to everybody. Uh, there's a documentary called Real Engine, where the yeah. real is R-E-E-L. I highly recommend it if you want to find out about how Hollywood has completely tried to adjust what it is to be a Native American and how a lot of people have fought against it and it's really really awesome stuff so in conclusion we will not be accepting the oscar for uh the godfather um in conclusion just want to say that out there uh go yeah. ahead man also well i do want to say oh sorry i, I do want to say that like our, our co-host antonio too like i i know that um he at least seems to be learned learned erudite uh, whatever you want to say on the um politics and like histories of at least central american or like north american like mexican first tribes and so i feel like he would be really interesting to bring in on some of like these kind of issues too and it's a shame he hasn't had time to join us but um i do want to say too just a point on the the point of exclusion i want to bring this back to our our discussion of um a girl walks home alone at night so whenever we're talking about the sort of solution to the lack of feminist perspectives in hollywood not necessarily being the exclusion of certain stereotypes but the presence of literal female directors putting forward their artistic visions um, and putting forward those perspectives to to make them present in a genuine way um, i think that seems to be the solution right like and i i don't think there are any um examples of 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 native american directors in horror sure, in the are. 90s putting forward that together are, are there sherman alexi is a native filmmaker who's uh the Business of Fancy Dancing and Smoke Signals were two of his films in the 90s. And uh, I don't know what he's done recently. I, I haven't necessarily followed him. But yes, Sherman Alexi is a film director who who uh, dips his toes in these kinds of issues. Uh, gotcha. There are, within the Native community, there are a lot of people who kind of reject the idea that Sherman Alexi would be their spokesperson. 
Um, but that said, there like he's one native film director who who I'm familiar with. Anything with John Wayne does a good job of portraying Native yeah, Americans. Yeah, that's Anything no, with that's, John Wayne. That's I the think. opposite of true. Yeah, that's that's the opposite. So so the other end. Let, let's come back now to to, to how you, you you first brought this up was the the idea of manifest, manifest destiny, destiny, right? Uh, yeah. I, Obviously, this this basic idea that it was you know, uh, well Europeans is destiny uh, um, given by God to, to to move across the West and to conquer these lands uh, to 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 kick off if not exterminate the native peoples uh, to to civilize and Christianize the West to uh, consume them to get stronger. Yeah, and well, it's all worked out just fine for us, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's also the opposite of true. But but, but again, let's so you know. The, the the similarity there, right? Again, the, the yeah. idea that it, this is our destiny, the, 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 uh, that we are superior to these people. The, 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 and, and on the one hand, it's the cannibals who are superior to the, the human beings they're preying on. And then, and then on the sort of extended metaphor, uh, it, it is the Europeans that are superior to the, the, the First Nations, to the native peoples. And they can, uh, they can do what they want with them. They can use them and they can consume them uh, because they are beneath them. And it's underwritten by, I believe this, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but political, I know political philosophy isn't necessarily your, your game, but John Locke um, described ownership as those people who are able to cultivate the land. So because the natives were incapable of quote unquote cultivating the land, they did not own the land. Therefore, it was our destiny, the Europeans' destiny, because we had the capability and the technology to cultivate that land to uh, to seize it from them. It's probably worth noting that I don't think that's what John Locke had in mind. Granted, he was far from what you call woke. Uh, he you know, worked for the British East India Company and certainly supported uh, colonialism in a, in, in a broad sense. Um, but uh, he, I, I, he, I don't believe he had in mind anything like uh, uh, the, the, the settling of the quote unquote new world uh, uh, when he was writing that idea. Okay, I thought he did. Okay, cool. Uh, you would probably know better than I anyway. But well, the, okay. the point, and then, but how does that then relate to the movie? Because that was an idea going on at that time. Maybe I'm falsely attributing it to Locke, but uh, bear in mind, Locke was literally writing before the United States of America was a country. True. So. True. True. And, but the but the point, how does that relate to this film? And that is that uh, Robert Carlyle believes that he can cultivate the people who are going out there, he can use their strength, he can basically treat them as farm animals, and therefore it is he who owns them, he who is able to to wield dominion over them. And uh, I, that's a, that's a point of view that is right in line with Manifest Destiny. So we have a Russian doll here. On the outside, you have the, the, the horrors of colonialism and Manifest Destiny. Or I mean, on the outside, you have the cannibalism, which I, everyone agrees is wrong. And that right. stands in as a metaphor for colonialism and Manifest Destiny, which people, you know, broadly speaking, think are wrong. And, and that stands in as a metaphor for the cultivation of, of animals and the eating of them for meat. And so it all just sort of opens up into this broad existential, and, moral, political, philosophical Russian doll. And within that is this this sophomoric idea of a ubermensch, and then within that is sort of a colonialist manifest destiny point of view. So I we solved it. <laughs> when when Garrett when Garrett when Garrett said uh, on the outside of this Russian doll is the obvious that it's wrong to be you know cannibalism is wrong. You should have seen Ben's face. I really want you to go back and watch this and watch Ben's face. Ben had this look. He's like. But is it though? And he sipped his wine. It was the greatest look I've ever seen. 
I just want to throw that out there. Um, Guys, and I, th- I already yeah. said that it's wrong. I, I verbally, I verbally put out there. Ignore the facial expressions and the subtle cues that I, I present, and the the lack of filter that I have. Just like take the words at face value. That's, that's really <laughs> what I'm asking of you. And we shall henceforth uh, term the the sophomoric interpretation of the Ubermensch as the Nowakian interpretation, because that is how I saw it. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's political stuff, there's individual stuff, there's ethical stuff. Can I can I turn it into what's actually, like, I already kind of dabbled in this, but I, I need to throw this out there completely. So we have a situation going on politically. You guys can completely detach yourself from what I'm saying right now if you need to not get attacked. But uh, we are in a political situation right now where we have a bunch of people detained in cages, which is usually what we associate with animals and cannibalism and all that stuff. Uh, and we talked about how we we try to other people to turn them into essentially meat. This is a, this is what's happening right now. And this film is very important to talk about because of that and because of the line where he was talking about we're not going to split up families. It, it, it totally is is talking about what's going on right now. We have a bunch of people in cages uh along our border right now and they're they're being lumped together in big huge groups uh laying on cement uh it's it's brutal horrible environments that we would never ever want for our own pets and we're letting this happen to people children are dying over this and these same people that are are saying they're upset about abortions and shit they are the same people that are are not even concerned about children dying in these cages it's it's happening under our watch in our own country. And the thing that's crazy about it to me, the craziest part, and we're talking about Manifest Destiny and, and, and Native Americans, Mexicans were here first. They were here first. We put together some arbitrary freaking lines and said, this is our land, and then and then said, fuck off. And But they were here first. Uh, Ava Longoria has been here longer than uh, in Texas. She owns land. Her people, her uh, family members have owned chunks of land in Texas longer than Texas has even been Texas. And she's a Mexican-American. Like, this is ridiculous that this is happening under our watch, that we are caging up people uh, that are from this land. uh, and, And I just, it's, this movie makes me think of that. Like we talk about meat and humans and all this other crap, like caging up humans. It, it, it harkens those ideas uh, of, of treating human beings like animals and treating them like they are meat. And I, I can't believe it's happening in this day and age. And I know that people are going to look back at this and be disgusted by it. So, well, this, this movie also offers a solution to the problem, which is we could just eat them. <laughs> right? But would they? And that's the exact question, right? They wouldn't. First of all. And that's why we shouldn't cage them, right? First of all, damn it, Noah. Damn it. <laughs> damn it, buddy. Uh second of all, can we can we do we agree? Like I feel like that's like the purposeful, intentional tactic there is to separate families to discourage people from trying to jump the border. Like that's actually the thing that's going on right now, like putting people yeah. in camps. They've explicitly said that that's why, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Shara. Of course, I mean, and that's that's 
an aspect of this film that I really didn't pick up on until you you talked about that that particular line. You know, I was dealing with this as sort of a meta commentary on on Manifest Destiny, but the applicability that that colonialist point of view has to what's going on on the Mexican border right now is is chilling and uh, and upsetting as well. So. Yeah, it is. It's a kind of manifest destiny, right? We took this land from you fair and square. What right do you have to try to come and, and live here with us? We kicked you out the first time. Why are you trying to come back? This right. land is our land. This land's not your land. It's also, right. I think the detachment piece is also very relevant here too. You know, we hear about this sure. from a distance. We see it on a television screen. There is that detachment in the same way we wrap the meat in cellophane. You know, there's there's something there going on. Also, I bet and, and and they literally wrap it in this in this, these blankets that look like foil, you know, like they're leftovers. It's fucking crazy that we can see these visuals that are just so obviously related to cannibalism, and nobody is seeing how horror films have like predicted how shitty we are to other human beings. But not only that, I I, I would like to also point out when it comes to how we're treating particular people right now in this country um we are putting them in cages we are putting them in a place where they have no food we're taking away all their medications we're taking away all their abilities to function and we're making them have to live in these squalor conditions it actually adjusts the way they look so that they look more animalistic and so our tribalism comes in and we can other them and see them as mm. dirty or gross or, or disgusting, and this is much like what, what happens with dogs when they uh, have been neglected. They tend to look less cutesy wootsy woo. Look at the corgi, but it's 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 uh, it's purposely trying to adjust the way they look so that they are not seen as human beings. And so I I, I have seen the way they are treating people is a way to adjust their looks so that we can see them as as meat as as not human. And go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're you're nailing it. Like that's absolutely right. But yeah, yeah. the as I say, the, the process of industrialization, you know, creates a system in which we can rapidly transform on on the one level animals into food for human beings to consume, and that those those processes which were perfected in cities like Chicago have been adopted in fascist nations like Nazi Germany, for example, to to be used against human beings. Uh, and again, I don't mean to fall prey to some sort of Godwin's law type situation. Uh, I realize that there, there there can be some sensitive feelings regarding anytime anyone invokes the Nazis. Uh, but let's you know again, it's hard to avoid this comparison of what's happening here. Is we are bagging and tagging these human beings on our borders. We're filing them away. We're, 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 we're apparently not doing a very good job of it. Some people are getting lost in the shuffle. Um, uh, but yeah, it's they are being treated more like slabs of meat, more like a uh, uh, chattel to the uh, to the slaughter than they are uh, the way you want to, uh, government officials to treat your own children if they were your children in this situation. Yeah, I think that's that's the one distinction that I would make between what we're doing right now and like the Nazi sort of concentration camps is that according to some figures, there are private institutions making money off of the um, housing of these immigrant children right making something along the lines of like 750 dollars per kid per day and it's not necessarily that we're trying to exterminate a, a a race of people it's that we're trying to make money off of their imprisonment you know i don't know just is that, that progress right like no, like that's that. not 
and 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 that's and and yeah no you it, it's disgusting and i i know that uh maybe ravenous was not made with the understanding that this was going to be happening in 2019 in america but i feel like when i watched it it was a complete reflection of our society today and maybe prophetic and um it it disturbed me on multiple levels and I, I didn't mean to make it super political, but that's where it hit me in the gut. And it made me consider it like how we treat our fellow human beings as if they're not our fellow human beings. And then this goes into Garrett's viewpoints about, and I know we'll get into it more so in another time period, but when we get into the ideas of the cannibalistic horror film being about uh, how we treat animals, we're animals <laughs> like like it's not cool right and to tie yeah. that this whole thing back into the the, the film right the, the the key thing for manifest destiny of course was the gold rush right it was it was about there's even the line in there about how thousands of gold hungry people are going to come pouring over these mountains and we're going to have our pick of them right we're going to going to select them out so there's there's a sort of a profit driven motive uh, uh underneath uh, the that uh, third act uh, turn too so it's like profit, dehumanization, removal of of seeing people as they are, the sort of consumption of culture. It's a lot of that. I think that all of that is relevant to Ravenous if you take it up a level uh, and remove it from the sort of individual existential issues and, and, and bring it into the political realm. Do you guys have anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? I'm going to have, I swear to God, I'm going to have a... A terrible nightmare tonight where it's going to be like a press conference and Trump's going to be like, I said there wasn't any food, but I didn't say there wasn't anything to eat. And it's going to like cut to the cages, you know, like this, this is what you've done to me. We're going to mix the political shit with people in cages with ravenous. My hundred percent. It's going to be something like that tonight when I dream. Fuck y'all. Anyway, do you guys want to wrap this a horror up? Movie. It's yeah. Fine. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about this, man. Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to end up rating this movie on our discussion and like the geopolitical sort of climate <laughs> rather than just the movie itself. I came into this. Uh, OK, never mind. No, that's that's for later. I will rate the movie later. Oh, one yeah, thing okay. I definitely. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I can tell one thing. Yes, yes I, it's going to be higher. Go, go. Go ahead and roll it into your final thoughts. No, man. Like, uh, uh, mm, mm? Okay. Yeah, Maybe. do it. Wrap so, it up. Let's go. <sighs> All right. So one thing I do definitely want to point out to here, too, is like an also a, a very lesser known movie, I think, called The um, the Man Who Would Be King. And I think that like sort of lays in nicely to this manifest destiny thing. And like it's a movie starring Sean Connery. And I think Michael Caine is in it, maybe. I don't know. I, I haven't watched it in a long time, but it's kind of like a Masonic thing. But basically, it's like these two guys go out into the desert and through their technological advancement or like their guns, essentially conquer one tribe and then use that one tribe to conquer another tribe and then another tribe to conquer another tribe. And like they have some sort of measure of success there, but then end up finding out that there is like this Masonic symbol or whatever like that, that this tribe has been keeping. And it's like inner temples or something like that to show that the people who come here who bear the symbol are kind of like the rightful kings or owners or something like that of this land right i mean i think it sean, Damn, I connery, think sean connery michael kane and it's based upon a novel by rudyard kipling it's an excellent film you're yeah you got all that perfectly right i just wanted to put the author on it too so great thank you thank you for the verification it's been a very long time since i've seen this so i didn't know if i was remembering it correctly but i i do think that 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 really sort of like ties into 
a lot of what we're talking about here so like the manifest destiny ideology of like you know it's it's sort of like divinely ordained that the people who are kind of like the most prosperous technologically can sort of roll in and show kind of like their advancement morally and like legally and and technologically to these people and kind of like lead them through their bearing of this like one particular light to a better future and like they have this right because it's morally correct because they're advanced so they can show these like unenlightened people the truth and the way and it's kind of fucked up and like i i know a lot of people maybe like and this is going to get super super controversial maybe but like i feel like if you know we talk about like the western europeans and potentially like white people having a culture like i feel like it's it's this right we roll up into a particular area we lay down our rules and our morality and our our logic and say this is the correct way to do things then we assume that everyone else ought to do things the way that we think that they should be done um if we really roll this film up into a particular like one sort of like point, I think this is it because there is this idea that, you know, these particular people have the right to do certain things or like maybe it's not wrong to do certain things because of their own personal gain. So they come in and take what they want rolling into the, the Wendigo sort of like mythology there. Like they can just come in and take and take and take and they never give, but they have kind of like this ideology sort of tying back into like this Western, um, manifest destiny idea that it's it's divinely ordained um and that's a complicated idea that's an extremely complicated idea because like obviously in the west and in particular the united states in our constitution we have this this idea i think it's in like the first amendment like we have this freedom of religion but like i think there's a lot of emphasis especially early on in the country that sort of like god ordains these particular paths and like destinies and things that happen and that certain people are kind of like the rightful purveyors of certain parts of the world or like maybe like they contain the true ideals of morality or religion or like technology or whatever like that they're more advanced they're better they're or they're they're anointed i guess um, and that's that's extremely problematic, you know, like I I know that we had this idea that these we should be free to to believe whatever we want and people ought to be able to practice whatever beliefs that they have and the pursuit of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Um, but I think that that comes to like there, there's a cost to that because implicit in that belief and that that laying out of an ideology is that other sort of groups that don't fall within that framework are lesser and deserve to be conquered and, and dominated. And that sort of comes back to the cannibalism thing, of course, where you have an in-group that sort of eats and consumes the resources of these other people or literally these other people to better themselves. So, I mean, it's extremely complex. Um, and sort of like to tie this back into, I guess, my like my final rating, you know, I, I think this is interesting and like discussing this film has become more interesting than I think the film was in like watching it the first time around. You know, there's a lot here to sort of dig through uh, and not to bore you with like a particular rant or anything like that. Like, I'll try to make this short. I, I thought, honestly, whenever I was watching this, that it was less good than raw. And that was sort of my benchmark for like a good cannibal film. But I think now after having discussed like the potential sort of sub layers and sub layers between the sub layers that exist here that this is probably on par. Like even if the filmmaking was a little weak from my perspective, the writing was a little weak, like the potential here was quite substantial. You know, they presented some ideas and there were some really interesting things that sort of got their start. It's a shame they didn't have more development. And if they had had development, it would have gone a little bit higher. But I guess like after this discussion, you know, moving up from maybe like what would have been a 3.5, like I'm going to put this on a four. 
um just because of nice. all of the all of the substance that you could potentially pull into this right like i i i didn't think it was going to be this high you know but there's there's a lot here to be discussed and it's really interesting and this this sort of like this piece of art this film spurs a lot of interesting discussion and that in and of itself has a lot of worth right so i'm going to go ahead and give this a four so justine is not happy with your score i don't know if you can see that she's just not she's not cool with it uh but that's okay that's okay um i guess i'll i'll this i think was garrett's pick but it's it ends so i'll go um this is um like ultimately one of my favorite movies so i want to be really careful i in, in the intro i said this is my one of my favorite movies it's definitely my favorite cannibal movie that doesn't mean i think that it has the most intellectual stuff to pull from it. I think the distinction between this movie and Raw is Raw has a much, to me, a more inter interesting set of uh, issues to draw from it. Uh, I don't think any of them tend to be political. I think they're, they're more individualistic and I look at Raw a very certain way. So I, I actually will give Raw the accolades of having, to me, a more interesting discussion about what to pull from it, um, but I just, this is a movie to me heavily weighted on the enjoyment. You know, we it's been a while, but we always make that distinction between enjoying a horror film and appreciating a horror film. This is one of those films to me that I enjoy thoroughly. I enjoy every single part of it. I The the, the score, the cinematic quality, the acting. I it, it clearly is a movie that has much more layers to it than I initially thought, thanks to you fine folks for bringing that out tonight. Um, so I won't keep you much more than that. Honestly, this is a four and a half out of five for me. I, I love this movie. It's not a five. It's a four and a half out of five. My five's reserved for some other, some other goodies, uh, hoping midsummer soon, but I doubt, I doubt it. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, four and a half out of five, um, lots to peel back, lots to chew on again. Sorry for the puns. Those are accidental puns. So, you know, they're better than the ones I actually planned for. Um, I absolutely love everything about this movie. So uh, definitely recommend it. I'll go and then I'll let, uh, you know, Jim and Garrett at the movies end this. <laughs> uh, so I had seen this movie before and it was a movie, whatever. Uh, watching it from the eyes of today, it seemed very prophetic. I think it meant to do that in a way. Like, honestly, think about it. The The people behind the film, if you look at the credits, it's all people from another country. They are not from here. Uh, they knew this was the story that needed to be told here for that very reason. That's why they had Wendigos in it, honestly. They were calling us out. I think, I think whoever wrote this or whoever was behind this uh, knew the route we were going down and it, it is very much resonating today. And so, yeah, it was, it was a fine movie, a fine cannibalistic comedian, Western fair, hilarious. Ha ha ha. But it, you know, upon viewing it in today's light, it was very dark and it stabbed me in the gut. So, uh, it, it definitely went up for me and I will say this, a lot of 90s movies have done that for me lately. Uh, I, I'm, I've been doing the 1001 movies you, you need to see before you die. And I want to watch all of them, even if I've seen them before. I was like, I'm going to watch all of them when I'm doing this list. And I'm watching some 90s movies that I watched back in the day. And I'm watching them today. And I'm like, this shit is way more important today <laughs> than it was back then, for sure. 
and this this would have to go up there with that like it it knows what we as colonialist white people do and it put it right out there and it definitely uh, is exposing some shit and yeah I, I have to up it to a four I, I did not have it at a four when I first originally watched it. In fact, I was comparing it to Matt Stone and Trey Parker's Cannibalism the Musical, which, by the way, I highly recommend still because it's hilarious as fuck. Um, but it it is definitely not as impactful. Uh, but definitely watch it because you'll see some comparisons. Maybe that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll put a video together and compare those two Western cannibalism films. You guys can see how much they are, are similar. But anyway, I give it a four out of five. It is it is definite watch for 2019. It's pretty high scores. Pretty high scores. So uh yeah, I'm looks like I'll probably be lower than than everybody, but wait uh, a minute, you guys are a conglomerate score. We're referring to you guys as Jarrett. <laughs> Jarrett. <laughs> not Jim, uh, but with a G. Um, no, I, uh, so yeah, I, I'm a little bit lower, but that's, uh, what, so we talked a lot about uh, the themes associated with this film. And I think all of those uh, conversations are valuable and certainly appropriate for this podcast. And I think that, that those, those themes have resonance as Ben was articulating a little bit earlier. Um, I also really like the sort of political angle that, that Shayra invited us to consider as well. Um, but one of the things that we didn't necessarily talk too much about is story construction. And there is a, a second act twist here where Jeffrey Jones comes back from the dead and he um, then then he sort of serves as this second act twist for a little while. And then he does this ex machina transition from committed to Robert Carlyle's vision to suddenly, oh, you should kill me. And that all just seems really, that's 20 minutes of the film that seems hand-fisted and structurally doesn't work for me. So we haven't talked too much about the story structure, but it's the story structure that brings this film down for me a little bit. Um, but the, and additionally, what also brings the film down is, is our discussion about the native stereotypes and how that may, that, how those stereotypes are also ham-fisted and how native, nativism sort of underwrites the mysticism of the movie in the deployment of a trope that needs to die, uh, that trope that is, that needs to die. So I, I, those are the things that sort of bring the film down for me. Positives are obviously Robert Carlyle being menacing as fuck. I think Guy Pierce is also quite good in the film. I I kind of like the editing style half uh, half the time, half the time I don't. Um, but I think it's well edited, well paced. Um, I think that the acting is good. I think the action scenes are good. So overall, I like the movie. I'm just at a 3.5 rather than a 4.5 and a 4 and a 4. Um, so for me, it's a 3.5 out of 5. Um, and it, it has to do with that mid, that sort of second act lull that uh, that structurally that, that part of the story doesn't really work for me. Now, you call it a second act lull, but I think it actually might be more of a third act and a four act total structure, which is a comment sure. to say that it, this film is structured in a peculiar way. Uh, it does not have obvious beats and rhythms like a, a lot of movies. That might be a reflection of the troubled production that Noah talked about earlier. I did not know about that story going into this 
But in retrospect, I think that makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, I, I, I share Noah's general enthusiasm. And I think yeah, everyone here has made some really interesting points. It's been a really interesting discussion. Um, uh, overall, yeah, the strength for me more than anything just is the, the ability to keep me engaged, to keep me guessing, to not know where the plot's going to go next, um, uh, which is you know high praise for a film for me. Uh, I want to add in another criticism, uh, uh, and that is I, I have to disagree with Noah. I do not think the score works. I mean, that, it works in some places. But uh, as mentioned, the part when Robert Carlyle uh, uh, um, sends Jeremy Davies running and goes, run, and then that, that jan janky, janky, jaunty score kicks in, I think that's just completely wrong. I think that absolutely... The killed. Appalachian orgy music is how we refer to it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I, I, to me, that is absolutely the wrong emotional chord to strike, and it completely pulled me out of the film. Um, same thing with that, the, 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 the blast quote, eat me at the beginning. Uh, again, I... I suppose they were going for some sort of comedy or something like that, but it, 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 that was not the right tone. I wish the film was more consistently dark. I wish it was more sort of uh, consistently heavy um, and things like the score and some of the editing and some of these sort of just production choices like the quote uh, uh, distract from that for me. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, overall, uh, I agree with the, 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 both the criticism that Jim made and the praise that Noah gave. So I split right down the middle, give, give it a four. Yeah, I, we didn't really hit my criticism. There's only one. They misspelled Nietzsche. That's that was my only. It's my only criticism. Can't believe they did that. By the way, they left out the S. That is a uh, legit criticism. That what is the hell. That is, but it just goes. It just it, I, it just goes with the rest of the movie. Like it's just it's funky and wonky. It's it's twangy banjo. Nothing makes sense. It's just you know what I mean. So you know what? It's not a criticism. I take that back. It's not a criticism. I, I like that part. Anyway, uh, join us next week. Next Sunday, we will be <laughs> going over another man-eater uh, film, which is Jaws. Uh, we will be doing Jaws next week. Um, so I will be out. Uh, Jim is going to be hosting. So this will be a fun one. Um, I'm hoping all of my co-hosts will be sitting in some body of water floating around uh, to do this discussion. Uh, that that's that's how you should watch Jaws. Uh, Jim, there's no body of water where you are. I Cow pee doesn't count. I just want to throw that out there. Um, so yeah, uh, join us. We're going to be doing Jaws next week, uh, Rear Window the week the week after that, and then uh, likely the week after that we will be doing Midsummer. So uh, hey, if you like this podcast, uh, yeah. Week after that's Rear Window. You said Rear Window. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, you're good. Jaws, Rear Window, probably Midsummer. Um, so yeah, uh, if, Hey, if you like what you saw tonight, check out Jim and Garrett at the movies. They have an awesome YouTube channel. Uh, again. Best opening theme of any podcast you'll ever hear. Uh, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, leave a leave a message here in our chat, uh, in, in our um, in our YouTube, if you, you agree or disagree with anything we said. Uh, vegans are not allowed. Sorry, Garrett. You guys can't leave comments. This is not the right movie to do that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll see you next week for Jaws. Peace. <laughs>